The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and today I'm here with two great, great people, both professional film editors, in fact, but I'll get a little more into that soon. Today, friend of the show, Paul Black, is joining me again to interview a Michael Jackson collaborator and award-winning professional film editor, Mr. Bob Jankis. Bob has had a long and rewarding career in film, working on Oscar-winning documentaries and music videos for some of the most well-known artists in the world, including Fleetwood Mac, Madonna, Prince, Janet Jackson, Quincy Jones, James Brown, and Donna Summer. Interestingly, Bob also had a collaborative relationship with film director David Lynch, and it's this relationship that brought he and Michael Jackson into each other's spheres, where they worked together on projects throughout the 90s and beyond. We are going to dig into all of that shortly. Before we chat with Bob, Paul, how are you doing? I'm great. Sitting here, Studio Sydney, ready to rock. That's great. Thanks for joining me again. We've just done the Ghost Roundtable recently where we talked a lot of film and uh, it's really exciting that we can be here together, I think, with Bob where we can talk to another uh, film editor. Absolutely. We'll get into all the technical and all the fun stuff of editing, but hopefully it won't be too technical for all the people out there. (laughs) I can't wait to hear you guys geek out. I'm just saying. But um, anyway, let's bring Bob in. So, Bob, welcome to the MJ cast. Where are you calling in from today? Thank you. Uh, Nice to be here. I'm in Los Angeles. It's uh, early afternoon here and um, excited about being with you guys and uh, telling some stories. Uh, we're really excited to have you here as well. And and what we like to do at the, at the very uh, beginning of our interviews is we actually like to go way back into people's origins and uh, how they, you know, their childhoods and how they ended up getting into the fields that they did. So just to begin, would you would you be able to take us way back to those early days and the kind of upbringing you had? Sure. Wow. Let's see. My my parents were actually European immigrants uh, from uh, Latvia, where my dad was from. My mom was from Germany. And they came to the States in the early 50s um, after World War II. And um, a couple of the things that right from early on influenced me uh, later um, was that my my parents uh, insisted on me taking piano lessons from when I was four years old. And I hate, have to say I hated it most of that time, but uh, eventually, uh, and I pretty much uh, stopped playing after I graduated from high school, but the last couple of years before that, um, I started to appreciate it more. Um, I was all, always mostly playing classical music. I fell in love with Chopin, and we um, and you would also play, of course, Beethoven and Bach and some Brahms. But the the significant thing about that is that when my music video career started, it took me a while to realize how much of an influence those early um, piano lessons had on how I approached what I did as, as an editor. 
I just had have kind of um, an innate sense uh, for musical structure, or at least I understand musical structure. And um, but that was something that, that I didn't realize right away un until some producers or directors I was working with and uh, would ask about how I was doing things instinctively. And and I, I said, well, doesn't everybody do it this way? And it <laughs> turned out uh, they, they, they didn't. Um, and so I tracked that down eventually. But I mean, you know, we, we'll, we can get into that a, a little bit later as well. Um, the other thing that was <clears throat> instrumental for me was my dad was uh, an avid amateur photographer. Um, actually, he had worked a little bit professionally as a, as a journalist uh, and I think as a portrait photographer um, uh, along the way. But it was never uh, he was never able to make enough money at it to to support the family. So it was always um, a hobby. One of the few things that when when he fled uh, Latvia at the end of World War II before the Russians closed off the the Baltics was uh, a Leica M3 camera, photochemical, so that he could you know develop and uh, print his own own pictures, and um, and of course he did that uh, you know for us as I was growing on up, and again early on um, you know uh, my mom and I a lot of times we would be rolling our eyes when uh, dad would want to set up and, and uh, take pictures or where we are out on vacation. But uh, eventually my, my own uh, interest developed in that way. And <clears throat> I think also by the time I was in, in high school, I finally asked him to teach me how to uh, develop and print pictures. We always had a dark room in the basement wherever we lived. And you know, of course, only doing black and white uh, pictures, but he taught me how to develop and print black and white pictures. So I was doing that, and he had a, a Bolex uh, eight millimeter uh, film camera to for our home movies, and uh, which was you know a pretty sort of high end film camera, and and I started playing around with that as well. I, I there was a a shift for me uh, during high school where early on. I always thought that um, I was a relatively good student and I thought I'd be interested in going to some sort of scientific career. But the um, huge disappointment of my young life was when I got into high school chemistry. And I had had this impression that chemistry was going to be, you know, mixing things together and, and having, you know, basically having uh, setups like you see in the movies of a chemistry lab, you know, with with boiling beakers and, you know, uh, things, you know, bubbling away and and like that. And when I discovered that uh, chemistry was really largely math, it, it was just <laughs> disappointing to me uh, to no end. And my, my whole sort of orientation switched. Um, we had also had a uh, kind of a film appreciation class in high school, but it, it wasn't about film. This was a, a, a class through the social studies department where we were looking at films and talking about them from the character's psychological standpoint or from a, a character standpoint, not, not a filmmaking standpoint. Or, um, um, uh, but, but that fascinated me. Um, I, you know, was not let's say, very psychologically uh, attuned or, and so 
understanding, starting to understand motivations and just looking at characters in terms of why they did what they did in the movies that we saw um, was, was equally fascinating to me. So um, all of those things started coming together. I think it was my, my junior year in high school and a, um, uh, a math class I was in, the, the teacher was so disgusted with our apathy, the students' apathy <laughs> um, towards what we were doing, that he just threw up his hands one, one semester and said, okay, this, we're going to do something different. You guys can do whatever you want for, for this semester. There's only two requirements. One is at the beginning of the semester, you have to, you know, uh, say what it's going to be that you're going to do. You're going to, uh, you know, come up with some kind of project. And then at the end of the semester, you have to present the project. So uh, that was something where I decided I'd to make a little movie. And I wound up, you know, with my dad's Bolex, I, I wound up taking a, a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young track called Helpless and making what I realize now was a music video to it. Um, there's a couple of verses in, in the song uh, that deal with big birds flying overhead is one of the lyrics that I remember. I don't remember them all right now. But what I did was I contrasted, basically. I made an, um, uh, an anti-pollution uh, video, uh, whereas in the, the first verses, are, I was shooting beautiful nature shots and um, and like when the reference with the birds came up of actual birds flying overhead. And then as the song developed and I did the, uh, the second verses, then all became about uh, pollution and smokestacks and, and dirty water and airplanes flying overhead. And that was, you know, kind of how I structured that thing out. So, you know, and then I, I, I had it, my, my synchronization method was uh, turning the film projector and my cassette recorder on at the same time and, um, you know, achieving sync, sync that way for uh, my four minute uh, video. And uh, it was well received, but what it actually led to was there was another guy uh, in high school who had been into movies for quite a while. He was uh, almost like when I think back on it, you know, um, what, what Spielberg talks about his childhood of, of making little narrative films with his friends. That's what this guy was doing. And we were not friends, um, before that, but he saw this little movie I made and we started developing a friendship and we wound up, uh, going to the same film school. We were roommates for four years and, and eventually talked about coming out to LA and meeting up here and trying to get a job in the film business. So back to uh, graduating from high school and going to film school, I, I was really kind of making it up as, as I went along. But my uh, film school experience in Ohio was at, a, at Ohio University, uh, which is in uh, Athens, Ohio. It's on the border of Appalachia, and it's a beautiful part of southeastern Ohio. You know, smaller school, but they actually had a nationally recognized film program. It turned out they were preparing students to be film teachers was really the uh, the focus of the of the program there and it was really designed to be a master's program you know and eventually that um, our of course my time in in film school at that time uh, my really my first interest was in European art films um, 
when growing up, my family, you know, we would go to movies occasionally, but I was not a movie buff growing up. But it was, you know, Godard, Truffaut, the French New Wave that really uh, stimulated my interest in film. Mm. And, and I wound up focusing on film because everything I was interested in, you know, from literature, uh, psychology, art, was kind of focused around film. You know, um, the movies that came out of Hollywood in, in the early 70s, you know, the Friedkin and, and um, Coppola and, and even, you know, early Spielberg. There was, there was almost more of a, a personal expression aspect to, to those films. And, and of course, you know, we were, you know, Bergman, Godard, Truffaut, all of those were, you know, not mainstream Hollywood films. You know, the, the idea of film as entertainment was, was something at least initially I even looked down on. I, you know, I, I, you know, maybe it's my uh, European background, but, you know, I, I was into quote unquote serious films, <laughs> but you know, that led me to, um, you know, my, that's the basis of my education. I mean, in, in many ways beyond just my, my film education. So all that was, was very instrumental in, in shaping me as a person and, you know, as a, as a filmmaker. Great. A lot of us as filmmakers, we, we all got into film in a similar way. We fell in love with the art form, but, I've spoken to a lot of editors, in particular fellow editors, and usually they fall in love with film and they want to be involved in it, but they don't always know where. And I don't know many people that start out by saying, I want to be an editor. They just fall in love with, you know, the world of film and cinema and all of that. And then maybe, particularly in film school, you try all the different things and then somehow you land on editing that sort of clicks with you. What was it for you that sort of made editing the thing that you thought you wanted to do or where you found your home in the art form? Well, um, my falling into editing really was falling into it. I never particularly thought of wanting to be an editor. What, what happened was that after I uh, graduated in, uh, from college and decided to uh, come out to LA, and I, I had decided midway through my college career that, that I wanted to actually work in the business very much uh, like you're describing. And of course, at the time, you know, I, I guess there was a, a film um, scene in New York, but it was really about Los Angeles. And so I came out to LA in um, the fall of, of 1977 and I knew all of three people out here, uh, uh, a friend from college, uh, somebody that I had met semi-professionally in Cleveland, where, I, where I'm from in Ohio originally, and an executive uh, who worked at Warner Brothers. And so I got out here and, you know, kind of said hello to people and <laughs> here I am. And... Um, you know, was, you know, looking at, looking at in the trades and, you know, just looking for a job. And um, after about four months, I, through one of these three connections, led me to auditioning for a job for a small production company that a guy was uh, named Jerry Kramer was just starting. He had been a producer for another filmmaker named Chuck Braverman. And Chuck Braverman's uh, claim to fame was, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the TV show from the uh, late 60s, 
called the Smothers Brothers. They were the, uh, an entertainment show that ran on American television for many years. And um, they would occasionally feature short art films or music films. And this guy, Chuck Braverman, was somebody that uh, directed and produced things that were, uh, for example, flash cuts that were um, entitled things like the history of art in three minutes. And he would pick a music track and basically uh, do flash cuts of all the art that had been made in the Renaissance, for example, or something like that. So uh, Jerry Kramer had been his uh, producer and decided to start a company on his own. So Jerry was somebody that had a, a music industry connections at the time. Uh, he had gone to law school with a guy named Jeff Aroff, who uh, became a pretty well-known uh, music executive, first at AM Records and then at Warner Brothers, and then eventually had a label of his own called The Work Group. The record companies at the time were making little promos, uh, occasional videos, but there was no market, no outlet for them here in the country. Um, but there was in, in England, for example, there was a, a pretty well-known show called Top of the Pops that, that ran these promos. And then we were also doing little 10, 15, 30 second bits that uh, record companies would use at uh, record company conventions like um, BAM and NARM. Um, where they would sh showcase whatever releases they, they had coming up. So this was uh, Jerry's initial work that, that was coming in. And he hired me as a runner. I you know, had a car. I had driven out from, from Ohio to L.A. And uh, you know, he liked my, my background in film. So he, that's what I started doing was, was uh, running from the office to the labs. Um, we were in Hollywood originally, and a lot of the, there were some labs in, in Hollywood, but also in Burbank. And there were constantly things that, that were, you know, needing to go back and forth. But as is happens very often with um, small production companies like that, if you either show interest or have some aptitude, pretty quickly you get to start doing other things. One of the things that we were doing the most of was post-production. Even if, you know, we would go out and shoot something, you know, that would be, you know, like half a day or a day, you know, the, the post process obviously was a little bit more involved and took a little bit longer. Um, we were working out of a little house in, in Hollywood and actually, let's see now, Paul, you, you, you know, or did you ever cut on film? Uh, yeah, a little bit. We started out um, at the AFI cutting on 35 for a while, but and then a bit later in 16 mil. So you know what an eight-plate chem is? Yeah. Uh, chem and Steenbeck were the, the, yeah. the, ma the major uh, editing tools at the time, although Steenbeck was more used on, on the East Coast and chems were the tool of choice out here. So we actually had two chems in this little house in, in West Hollywood off of um, Melrose Avenue. Where when, I, when I walked in there, uh, there was a guy who was cutting some music films for Electric Light Orchestra that Jerry had, had shot and were just in the finishing process. Um, this was, you know, from the, um, oh, the album that Mr. Blue Sky came off of and, and those, those songs. Eventually, you know, as these little promos went on, uh, you know, I got an opportunity to cut stuff. And Jerry was one of the people that 
figured out that I had a knack for doing that. And it was actually on a video that he directed that where there was an opening section of, of uh, 16 bars, but um, four beats to, to each. And he had shot it so that there was something specific he wanted to use on, on each of those, but he didn't tell me about it. So he gave me the film when it came in and I started cutting and that's how I organized it. And he comes in to see what I've been working on. I show it to him. He said, how did you know to do that? And, you know, so I explained, I said, you know, well, it just seemed obvious to me that that's how the music was structured. So I, you know, organized the material, picked the material that you had shut to go with that. And that's kind of when I realized that um, my music, my piano background, you know, was something that was doing well for me at this point. You know, people generally, even though they'd grown up with pop music and, you know, maybe intuitively understood pop music structure, nobody really knew what a verse and a chorus and a bridge and all that that was. But when I started, you know, editing, that was kind of the path that I would follow. And uh, executives and, and, and artists, you know, of course, when musicians would come in, you know, if they saw that you understood the music that they had made, you know, that was all in, in our favor. And that's, that's how I fell into editing. Jerry had a partner uh, for a while, and both of them had various record company connections. And so the, the first full video that I cut was for the band Sticks. Um, in, I don't know, 79, I think it was. And we had actually gone out on tour with them. Um, um, I, I forget the name of the album, but it was the big hit that came out of that was the song Babe, which I did not cut, but I, I, I cut one or maybe two other songs from there. But we shot them a couple nights in concert. And I've always, again, my thanks to my film school background and uh, my dad's interest in photography, I've always been a pretty good camera operator. So, you know, that was something else that that came up during my tenure at, uh, with Jerry Kramer. And uh, so we shot a couple nights of them in concert of uh, the band Sticks. And then uh, on the, the second day in the afternoon, we set up in the concert hall that, that, that we were in and shot more footage to playback of the concert from the night before. I mean, this is something that's you know, commonly done. And uh, we, we were only there with, God, I think four or five cameras. I mean, you know, nowadays concerts are shot with 10, 15, 20 cameras and remote cameras and, you know, the coverage is all over the place. In those days, it was a much simpler time. And, you know, we would, we would have, you know, three cameras in front of the stage and then maybe one backstage. And so doing um, shooting, you know, a couple nights and then doing the afternoon shoot to playback was something that gave us more coverage. One of my other uh, early experiences as, as a camera operator was we, we did a couple, uh, went out on tour with Fleetwood Mac. And um, that was one of the things that there, there was a concert in St. Louis um, in 79, I think, that uh, I was actually one of the on-stage camera. There were two of us that were running around with cameras on stage. There was no video taps in, in those days. So we were, you know, just all kind of doing what, following our instincts. And, you know, I, I, I love doing that. I, I actually was 
not editing that much yet in those days, but there's um, a couple songs that are that are on YouTube from that concert that I have, you know, shots in from when I was uh, shooting Fleetwood Mac. Because we were more doing more uh, post-production, uh, that was sort of the natural thing to get into. I liked it, obviously, and and I was getting a little bit of a reputation as being one of those people that understood music. You know, the other thing that goes along with those early days was, you know, quick cutting. And, uh, you know, something, you know, it became a bit of a, a cliche in, in um, music videos was that, you know, that would be cut quicker and quicker. Uh, attention spans were uh, getting shorter. And, and I think one of the things that I had something to do with was style that, for, to my eye, I like obviously cutting quickly because I liked following the, the beats and the structure of the music. But I was not interested in creating confusion. Um, my, you know, and, and of course, in the early days of music videos, most of it was performance oriented. You know, it wasn't really until the, the early Duran Duran videos that came out and, and those were coming out of England where the, the whole idea of conceptual music videos started being developed. Early on, it was pretty much all performance based. And so I, I liked creating clarity. So for me, it was all about, I loved seeing the guitar player's hands on, on the guitar and then close up because, you know, you go to a concert, that's not what you're seeing. They didn't have uh, video uh, displays at the time. So doing music videos gave us a chance to see musicians up close in ways that you normally didn't at the, at the time. And one of the, I think back on one of the early, one of my favorite compliments that I got from a record company executive uh, was he said, I seem to have a knack for being able to make sense out of nonsense. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, you know, that was something that I, that I based that early part of my, my career on. That that's all phenomenal information. Thank you so much, Bob. I mean, I can really look back in the rearview mirror now and see all of these stepping stones and how they all led you to being able to work with Michael Jackson. Um, would you be able to walk us through how you first came into contact with Michael and his camp and how that all evolved? Yes. A director named uh, Mark Romanek, whom I imagine you know, was hired to, this was uh, at the time when the um, black or white video from the Dangerous album was, was going to be premiered. And Mark, uh, who eventually wound up doing the Scream, directing the Scream video, mm -hmm. um, was at this point hired to do the lead-in to the reveal or the uh, premiere of the black or white video. Uh, Michael, uh, Michael's people had set up a premiere on uh, Fox television. Um, it was a big, uh, you know, uh, thing in the evening. Uh, it was, you know, going to be premiered worldwide. And um, Michael had, had been a little off the radar for a while. So he wanted something that was some sort of retrospective to lead into the, the premiere of the video. And Mark uh, Romanek had actually pitched Michael at some point on doing this retrospective, not to Michael's music, but to a piece of classical music of some sort, uh, because quote unquote, Michael is a classic. 
And he, Mark um, Romantic wanted to do something that was, you know, not your usual musician band retrospective. So Michael liked that idea. And Mark and I had worked together before. So he hired me to start, you know, to work on this with him. Well, um, he and Michael had had some meetings and they had uh, been listening to classical music and uh, but had not found anything yet that that they all agreed was, you know, the thing to go with. And um, but there was, you know, Michael made his entire library, video library available. And there was obviously a lot of material to go through. So I had started pulling things out, you know, from from his childhood, from, you know, the famous videos, of course, and whatever had been done at that time. And, you know, we were just experimenting with with uh, various uh, pieces of classical music. Well, you know, I want to say a month into this, Mark uh, exited, Mark Romantic exited the project uh, because he had a scheduled conflict. And so at that point, Michael had seen some of the little snippets that I had, I had been cutting just as examples, you know, for what this might wind up looking like. And he said, well, let me meet the guy who's been editing this. So that led to my first meeting with Michael. And we wound up, we had that at his manager at the, at the time was a guy named Sandy Gallen, um, who was Dolly Parton's uh, partner and, you know, managed Michael for some time. And um, so they bring me over to Sandy's house and uh, to have this meeting with Michael. And my, my first experience with him was, uh, you know, I met, you know, Michael was sitting in the middle of the living room and, you know, he basically rehashes this idea of, you know, what he liked about it and what they had. And he pulls out a cassette and he said, well, here, I want to, you know, play what, what I've collected so far. So my first experience with Michael was going into Sandy Gallon's uh, den and trying to figure out how to work the stereo system because of course Sandy did not know how to do that and <laughs> Michael and I are are standing there punching buttons on on you know the stereo and running into the living room to see if any audio was coming out and you know it it was just kind of funny and fun and you know but and it I always had like a little bit of a playful interchange with with Michael and and it goes back to that um, and of course, finally, you know, we got the thing going and, um, you know, he had some various things that he, that he had listened to and um, we did and we talked generalities and, and I, off I went. Just a quick question. Sorry, just before you continue on, I've got to know, I mean, you obviously had interacted with some notable and famous people before this moment. Were you particularly the kind of guy to get starstruck? I mean, you're standing there trying to operate a, a stereo system with the king of pop. So... <laughs> Um, no, fortunately I'm not, you know, I, I even have to say, I mean, of course I, you know, I loved Michael's music, but I was not a, like a huge Michael Jackson fan. So, you know, I, and maybe I had worked with enough celebrities at that point to not be starstruck. You know, I, I'd really have to think about, uh, an experience because where, where I was, because when you're working with somebody, I mean, you know, and it was, uh, like going back to my, my first job with Jerry Kramer, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Donna Summer would come in to look at uh, something that, that we were working on. And it, there was almost like a, a casualness about that. And the thing is that you start to, you, you see celebrities as human beings. It's not, um, you know, they, they don't act like quote unquote stars, 
the, you know, my, and I, I talked to, you know, a lot of colleagues about this over the years, the more successful, the higher up the, the um, chain they were in many ways, the more humble they were, the more mm-hmm. easy to communicate with they were. Um, the ones that were either not doing so well or were more ambitious or, you know, were trying to prove something were the ones that would have more attitude and, you know, that were maybe more difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. But Michael was always very clear about, in many ways, about what he wanted. I mean, you know, he's obviously uh, intimately involved with with his image, with how he's presented, with 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 all the aspects of of the music, you know, the and and he was, you know, out of his whole life was experienced on all those levels. So even though he would not necessarily, uh, you know, he, he, there was always a collaborative element to it, you know. And and that's what was fun with with this project, where was um, you know there was this experimentation about how would we accomplish this. What wound up happening was that that Michael started calling me regularly and and telling me about uh, things that he wanted to have included, and and this shaped how I wound up uh, approaching this piece. Uh, like I had said initially, it was supposed to be a retrospective of his career up until, you know, that time, you know, so that the audience was kind of, you know, brought up to speed again on all the things that Michael had done over the years. Uh, and then, you know, the, the grand re- reveal of, of this new video. Well, I wound up taking a different approach to that for a couple of reasons. And this is, this is how that came about. One of the things that Michael talked to me about a lot was the experience in concerts of uh, girls fainting and guys too. He he talked about that a lot. And initially, I'm as much of a, you know, can be cynical as well. And he said, well, obviously this is, you know, Beatlemania. This is adulation. This is, um, a, you know, musician or a performance artist wouldn't like um, people screaming and fainting and, and doing all that. Um, so, you know, that went on the list of things to include. But what happened along the way and what changed my mind about that was that as Michael would talk about how his performance experiences were, I started to realize that these um, the screaming, fainting moments were actually the closest that Michael ever really got to interacting with his fans. Hmm. He, you know, obviously could not go out on the street without being recognized and mobbed. And there is something, there is an energy about these, you know, it, it, Beatlemania is, you know, uh, also a a good example. Uh, Elvis, um, there was, you know, the out of control emotional expression element that, that audiences brought to these artists and to Michael was something that, he, I realized he felt he matched in his performance, his music, you know, it, it comes out of him, you know, it's, it, it is an um, organic, emotional, uh, energetic expression. And that is where he met uh, his audience in that. So when I realized that, that's when I started thinking about this intro promo piece in a different way. 
I had been familiar with uh, Karl Orff's piece, Carmina Burana, um, before that. But as I had been working on this, that was kind of in the back of my mind, that the crazy energy of O Fortuna part of that uh, composition was something that I could picture to these shots of audiences all jumping up and down together um, and of, you know, people losing their shit <laughs> and, and screaming and yelling and that there, there seemed to be a connection there. So uh, as, as my thinking evolved on, on this and of, you know, of course, then I'm, you know, pulling all this stuff out of, out of his library that started to take shape in, in that way. And are, are you guys, you guys have seen this piece, right? Yeah. Oh, like countless times. <laughs> so, so essentially, Bob, you're working on what became known as the Brace Yourself teaser, which, you know, in many right. fans' minds and, you know, possibly the world over is considered the definitive, you know, retrospective anthology and kind of became the template for anything that came after that. But that was one of the, the very first significant ones that became like a huge thing i mean that's a daunting task but it's it's and it's just so impressive to hear that you know you actually came up with the track that was going to be used you know that carl off piece i'm just fascinated to know like you, you're creating this piece of saying this is pretty much if anyone wants to know what michael jackson was about that could be the one thing that you'd send them to to see to have a look at Right. And I'm thinking you had access to the archives and you had access to all of this material. And, and, I'm, and I love this piece so much. And it was one of the things that really struck me as a fan. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. And in a lot of ways, was so inspired by the editing and the way you put it together and certain movements that you would use, you know, when it's, you know, it's got the mm -hmm. da, 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 boom, boom, and you'd cut to the perfect movement. It was just phenomenal and i'm just curious i know a lot of that footage came from you know there was various mtv specials and things and mm -hmm. you had access to a lot of these bits and pieces something was used here something was used there i mean did you have to dig through raw concerts like a two-hour show or is it like most of these pieces like you're talking about michael saying i want this i want that like in terms of the material that you were working with right how long did you spend combing through material was it mostly pre-edited little reels and bits or bits that michael said i want this like talk us through what it was like trying to curate all of that material and, and in what form it came right and in what format it was on that kind of thing it was a little bit of both a lot of it was, so to speak, pre-made or pre-existing. Yeah. You know, the, the videos that, that I pulled from, uh, you know, that had been made at the time, television commercials. But some of the concert stuff was raw material. You know, Michael would always have cameramen shooting the audience during, during the concert. So a lot of that was not pre-edited. Um, mm. uh, you know, there were, there were even particular people that, you know, Michael had, had watched and, you know, that they, they, um, uh, they, they had names in, you know, for them in the library, you know, it's like, you know, make sure he gets, uh, he gets that girl or, you know, or, or that guy and, or that moment, you know? And so they, they had been, um, you know, and I, I don't remember to, to tell you the truth if they had been collated in maybe a rough kind of form, you know, that there was a half hour reel of, 
of girls screaming. There may well have, have been. So it, it, it was this combination of things. You know, I mean, his archive is, you know, he literally had everything that he had ever been involved in. But of course, once I had this idea of focusing on that, that kind of helped to narrow it down in terms of what I was asking his, um, you know, librarian and archive people to, to pull for me. I did not talk to Michael about this at all, you know, while, while I was, was doing this. And, you know, that's something I, you know, want to, uh, is, is a part of this story that might be interesting. When once I decided on uh, using Carmina Burana, the first thing I did was cut the second half of the Brace Yourself video, the, the mm. fast, crazy part, um, because that was a thing that had really inspired me initially. You know, when when I saw these shots of, of you know, entire stadiums jumping up and down together and, and you know, that's that was the energy that matched that. And that, that this was always, you know, my thing with cutting music videos uh, was my my secret was always to try to match the music. You know, traditionally filmmaking, uh, television commercial making was started with the picture video, you know, and then audio obviously came in later, um, not necessarily as an afterthought, but, you know, it was picture dominant. When I started cutting music videos, I made the music God. I made mm. the music dominant. That was my reference. And that's why I had success early on, especially with musicians, because they kind of recognized the kindred spirit or somebody that, you know, was into the nuances of what they were, you know, putting into their recordings. So, with Carmina Burana and people fainting and th that that crazy energy was something that really went together for me. And uh, and of course, you know, the second half was the fun, <laughs> the fun part to do. So I did that first. <laughs> and then, you know, when it got to the, down to the final crescendo of that was you know, my opportunity to, to use all these stills that Michael had thrown my way. And, mm. and so that's where I did my version of my, my first bosses. Uh, uh, it was called kinestasis uh, at mm. the time. Uh, kinestasis was like an animation style of, of using still photographs in a quick cut kind of way. I mean, it was kind of the opposite of the Ken Burns effect, you know, where, but um, a lot of what uh, we had, there was a, um, an animator named Ken Rudolph who actually photographed these things on a, uh, on a, an Oxberry, which is an animation stand and uh, had made uh, all of, all of these short films. So doing these quick cuts at the end of uh, Carmina Burana was kind of my tribute in a way to that and also a way to work in more of this material the the second so the second part of the Camarina Barana piece was virtually unchanged from from how I cut it originally hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you about the meeting and all that kind of stuff later um, the first part of it I think I had tried to make the historical retrospective go into the first part hmm. so that um, I could, uh, you know, fulfill that part of the assignment of, um, you know, doing this, uh, you know, Michael's uh, history as a lead in. 
Uh, and that was something that eventually we, we went through various permutations on. And it wound up the way it did uh, with a lot of the emphasis was um, on uh, Michael's Jap- Japanese tour, uh, mm. tour of Japan. Um, and part of what he loved about that was that Japanese audiences traditionally, no matter who it was, were incredibly polite, always <laughs> sitting in their chair, clapping after a song. That was it. For people to be rushing the stage, for girls to be screaming and and and, and fainting and all that stuff was particularly unusual in Japan. And so that was something that that Michael wanted wanted to focus on. And as we were, you know, had started fine tuning the piece eventually. So so that and and then of course the there's you know the the build up to him being on stage. So that wound up informing the the sort of the concept behind the first part. But you know that came a little bit once we were actually working together on this. The whole thing just came together so well, and mm. it just. When I first saw it, it just drew me in the way it just sort of built and built and built and then coming up to the climax and the whole thing. And particularly, as we'll get to, I'm sure, when they use that in concert to sort of set the scene and get everyone hyped up and excited, ready for what you're about to see for a full length live concert. Like the way it was structured was just amazing and and for a fan to see at the time all of those clips and a lot of those clips we hadn't seen you know mm-hmm. some of the live concert stuff was was not the japan tour it was like from other shows and all these bits and pieces right. i think i was imagining you know what it must be like putting something like that together i'm actually curious a little bit about the technical side of it like what sort of formats were all of these uh, archive materials on and and what were you actually cutting on at that time was it like a tape to tape sort of system or a one inch reel or what was the system you were using it was a three quarter inch okay like a umatic or you know there was you know the the dominant companies uh making video editing equipment were grass valley and um cmx they, and and these were you know expensive systems that were you know controlling you know everything from you know two inch machines to uh, three quarter inch machines. Um, there was a guy named Jack Calloway who was an engineer uh, who used to work for Grass Valley, but these systems they you know they they were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. Um, and as uh, music video people, you know we could not afford to do our offline work on systems that were charging five, $600 an hour. Hmm. This guy, Jack Calloway, developed a system that could control three quarter inch machines uh, that went through a small switcher so that we could do dissolves and simple effects and hmm. um, uh, uh, green screen keys and stuff like that. But that cost a fraction. You could set up, um, uh, instead of a half a million dollars, you could set up editing, three-quarter inch editing system with a deck that could do slow motion for like $120,000. <laughs> and that made a big difference. I mean, I cut music videos on VHS systems that were cuts only, uh, you know, mm. uh, industrial systems. And all of that in an effort to, you know, to be able to work inexpensively. Uh, as soon as, Paul, I'm sure as you know, uh, as soon as you say, well, I'd like to do a fade out or I'd like to make it dissolve, <laughs> you're talking about a whole different level of equipment yeah. that yeah. was necessary to be able to do that. So um, by the time I, I was uh, cutting this, uh, I was working on this a Callaway system with three quarter inch 
uh, decks, uh, you know, that could do slow motion and fades and dissolves. And those were really the basic tools of the trade. I, I thought, you know, it was never into particularly video effects or, you know, spins and wipes and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it, it, I was um, always tried to be a little bit more organic, so to speak, in, in that way. Yeah. Michael's library was, you know, masters were either on uh, a two inch, one inch, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there was, you know, digital was, you know, starting to make its way in, but some of the early stuff just, you know, existed on Reels. Uh, various, uh, you know, video formats. And then they would make dubs for me, three quarter inch dubs with time matching time code, of course. And, um, so that's what I was initially working on was three, three quarter inch video. So are you saying that you did an offline edit that later was overcut or online for this? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It was all, you know. I mean, the the system was able to spit out an EDL, okay. um, and and so it was all, you know. By the time we we got to online, I mean, it was, you know, basically an auto assembly. Uh, you know, the machines just yeah follow the the EDL, but EDL being an edit decision list, technical boring editors talk. Correct. It's basically everything that, you know, it can sort of figure out what frame you started on, what you ended on. Was it a straight cut? Was it a dissolve? And then it can be recreated in the highest quality. And that's what basically an online is. It's making everything high quality so you can start working cheaply by the sounds of it at low quality. Yes. And then later, once you decide this is exactly the final cut, they can spend the money getting it all into high quality and mastering it up and getting it ready for, for submission and broadcast. Exactly. And you, you have to remember that, um, you know, even though, let's see, VHS tapes were around <clears throat> on a professional level, uh, three-quarter inch was the standard mm. for offline or for viewing. Um, you know, nobody had a laptop that, that they could pull up a, a file on and, and watch something. So yeah. executives and record executives and, and, and filmmakers and studio executives, if there was something that was being worked on that, that they wanted to see the progress on, it was three quarter inch video. Yeah, it was, you know, ubiquitous in, in that way. And so, you know, of course, it was much higher quality than a VHS tape. And also was able to carry time code, which is, you know, the system for um, matching up a frame from uh, uh, the three quarter inch video to the ultimate, eventually ultimate master so that, you know, you could recreate the offline cut at high quality as, as you were describing. So talk us through, like you said, you've presented this cut and you got it ready, but then you had a meeting with Michael to go over notes and see the evolution and his final approvals and what he was thinking and his input. Talk us through some of that stage. As I was working, and like I said, we, we were talking on the phone fairly regularly, but I think early on, as I said, when, when um, we were working, looking at other pieces of music, I may have sent him little snippets of this or that, but by the time I decided on Carmina Burana, I, I actually I may have actually said to him, I've got something that I that I I think is good and that I want to pursue, but I don't want to show it to you because I don't want to spoil it. So and he trusted me on that. And hmm. as it turned out, I, I don't think he had ever heard Carmina Burana before. Wow. So, you know, th this was, of course, at a time when, you know, before it became the soundtrack for every movie trailer ever made, um, <laughs> you know, by, by 91, it was not nearly as, as ubiquitous. 
I had cut something to that on a documentary about New Orleans, about Mardi Gras, that I worked on with David Lynch's writing partner, Mark Frost. And um, we were doing a, um, a, a Fox documentary series called American Chronicles. And because after the success of Twin Peaks, uh, everybody wanted to have a piece of David Lynch. And so he and Mark, who was his writing partner on Twin Peaks, came up with this idea of doing an offbeat um, documentary series about American institutions. And the first one was Mardi Gras. And for the finale of that, we used Carmina Burana. So um, anyway, I finally get to a point where I, where I have a, you know, a complete cut. And um, so I called Michael up and I said, hey, I'm ready to, to show you something. And he was uh, working at Ocean Way Studios in, in the San Fernando Valley and, um, you know, set up a time, why don't you come see me tonight? And, um, you know, it was, it was around midnight, um, you know, that I, that I went there with my, you know, three quarter inch tape and, you know, we set up in a room where they, you know, it was a little screening room where they had a, you know, a monitor and a, and a, and a machine. And it was just myself, Michael, and this guy, Joe Wilcotts. Now, do you know who Joe Wilcotts is? No, I have heard that name. I wouldn't be able to pinpoint exactly who he was. So Joe, Joe Wilcotts was a cinematographer. Uh, he was actually, you know, maybe his claim to fame was he was the cinematographer on the original uh, television series Roots. Okay. Um, Joe was the first uh, black cinematographer that was uh, initiated into the American Society of Cinematographers. Hmm. And he... I forgot how he had met Michael originally, but he became Michael's official videographer for quite some time. And in some ways, Joe was a little bit older. Um, he was also a bit of a father figure for Michael. You know, they had a, a, a very close relationship. I don't know. I think every time I, I saw Michael, Joe was there in, in some capacity or other. Very nice man. Very uh you know, very knowledgeable, a really, a really good filmmaker. So it was Joe, Michael, myself. And so I put this tape on in the plays. And when it's done, Michael looks over to me and he's got a little bit of a grin on his face. And he <laughs> goes, the first words he said were, oh, I see Jenkins is trying to hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I looked at him I didn't know quite what to make of that. Um, you know, I saw that he was smiling, so I, you know, figured he wasn't angry, but I didn't know what hurt me means. And so Joe jumps in and he said, let me explain something here. When Michael and Quincy were working on Thriller, you know, they developed little, you know, a language between themselves and, and uh, you know, little catchphrases that they would use um, in their workflow. And one of them was when, whenever they, and both of them used it this way, when they really wanted the other to really impress them, they would say, I really want you to hurt me. Yeah. So that's where that was coming from. And so for Michael to say, he sees him, he always called me Jenkins, by the way. He, <laughs> about, he always called me Jenkins. He said, he's, he saw I was trying to hurt him. You know, I, I knew I was, when I, Realized that I knew that I was in a pretty good place. And so we watched it, you know, a number of more, more times, um, you know, that evening. 
and and then uh, that's when we started talking about the the opening part of it. He loved the ending of it, and like I said, I I could almost swear that there were art, weren't any changes made. Uh, the one thing that did happen, um, oh, I know two things. One was that in the final flurry of of images of still pictures and album covers and and all that stuff. He wanted me to introduce the the title "Dangerous," that red yeah, and black right. um, title. That was something I did not have in there originally, but he wanted that popping up. Reg- actually, a little bit more than I, you know, would have done. But um, <laughs> subliminal but, you know, advertising. He was, yeah, yes, he was the boss, and and, and you know, um, so there you go. But um, and and that had actually uh, come from uh, David Lynch had made this. Uh, a weird promo for the Dangerous album that you yeah, know the teaser, yeah, familiar with you know that that I was also I was the editor on that. But uh, but anyway, so there was that, and then the 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 animation of the fist punch at the end mm. that was something that we kind of came up with collectively. Um, I even forgot what I how I originally ended it, you know, but obviously with some sort of explosive something or other yeah. but michael wanted to have the words brace yourself on there because you were going to be bracing yourself for the premiere of the black or white video so that was going to be the lead-in and then joe through uh some contacts of his i forgot who actually did the animation of that but um uh, joe kind of spearheaded that little you know two second bit at the end um, but other than that, the, you know, the back end of Kalina Brown was, you know, pretty much the way I, I'd originally cut it. But the first part, well, that's where we talked about this and where the thing with the uh, Japanese fans came from. And another thing that Michael had pointed to that he wanted was the the military part of it was was something yeah. that was dear, dear to his heart. And right. So with the running with the uh, the policemen and the the army guys or wh- whatever it was, um, you know, we started focusing in on that, that, that the first part became this, um, you know, pre-concert uh, lead buildup, you know, so, so that's how that wound up taking shape. And I'm, I'm sure at one point I probably asked, I said, you know, initially, originally the idea was to have this historical retrospective. But at that point, you know, Michael, you know, the, the whole focus had shifted around this concert performance and mm. this energized thing. And that, that so all the other stuff went, went by the wayside, aside from like the, the quick montage at the end, where I think I've probably covered something of <laughs> every aspect of, of his career. Yeah, yeah. But it all wound up being centered around the... Uh, uh, performance aspect. It's interesting as as you're talking through that. I'm sort of having images of. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the history teaser that was for the next album and the next tour. It feels like what you created was a precursor to that using archive footage, all the military and ramping it all up, and then building and all the hype and the excitement. Later on, when he did the history one, it was like a a dedicated short film that he created. And the narrative was all of this military stuff and all of that and the marching and all of the things and then the build-up and he had the statue and the whole thing. Yeah. But uh, as an editor, uh, from a structural point and a story point, it feels, and I'm just thinking of this now, it feels like Michael took that 
sort of thing that you'd created for Brace Yourself and said, look, I want to do something like this, but let's actually create a narrative to make a short film that does a similar thing that we can use for the next series of concerts and the next album and so on. So uh, have you seen that thing, Bob, the, the, the history one with the statue? Oh, yes. Um, I, well, I was not directly involved in that, although I... You were the inspiration. <laughs> well, y yes, I may well have been. And the funny thing is that Michael actually, once that had been shot and was being edited, called me up and asked me to cut my own version of it. Huh. So while so I got all the footage from um, uh, Rupert Wainwright, I believe was the director on that, and he was cutting it with with a, um, a well-known commercial editor named Ry Dahlman. They gave me copies of all the material, and I went off and somewhere I think I've got a copy of what I did. I, wow. I thought actually that what that piece eventually became. Um, you know, I thought it was a little over the top. <laughs> That's Michael. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, he had to top what you did. That's the trick. <laughs> well, exactly. I, you know, and the thing was, you know, with Race Yourself, you know, it, it was organic in the sense of that it was, uh, you know, even though some of the footage came from videos, it was real footage in a way, you know. Yeah. This had obviously been been specifically shot for that. And and you know, and in some ways it looked like it. I mean it was beautifully done. It was beautifully mounted and all of that. But but it it was like the formalized version of, yeah. of uh, Brace Yourself, you know. Um I forget right now what music I used. Crap, I, now you got me. I, I'm going to have to try to find this or look this up at some point. Oh, please um, do, yes. But, but when, I, when I showed it to Michael, you know, he liked it. And I, I believe he literally said, this is a softer, gentler version of, you know, history. You know, I still had, you know, like the reveal of the statue and all that stuff. But I, I, I used some music, and, and I may well have been using classical music again, but something that was uh, maybe, I don't know, dare I say, a little less grandiose or something like that. Mm. And he did like it, but, you know, it was not what he was looking for, but, but he, he, he liked it, and I think it gave him a contrast, you know, something to bounce off of with what he was doing so that that what the final piece actually became was you know he wasn't just working in a vacuum he said ah you know this is yes somebody could do something like this with this footage but i want to do this mm. you know does that make sense yeah uh so i did that was a little another little side project that um yes that i worked on for him that that um never saw the light of day that's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I would like to ask about when you watch Brace Yourself and things like the history teaser and so many other things that Michael did in his career, even cuts of different concerts and different things, obviously a prominent thing that stands out in them is lots of crowd shots of fans like fainting and loving Michael and just cheering and all of that kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. and, and as you go through his, you know, the nineties phase of his career, even when you're looking at the live performances of, of songs like earth song fans sort of jokingly sometimes call him like the king of propaganda <laughs> where mm -hmm. it's like, he's trying to create this messianic 
image of himself, mm-hmm. e- even though that, you know, huge adulation of him existed in reality, he kind of took that mm-hmm. and sort of like amplified it in his video material. Did you ever mm-hmm. have any explicit conversations with him where he was giving you the reason why he wanted to portray himself that way? I want to say no. There was, I never had uh, any sort of specific or explicit conversation with Michael about the quote unquote uh, messianic uh, uh, imagery or visuals that, that, that he might have created. My point with Michael, and you know, I, I have to tell you honestly, be, before I met him and worked with him, I thought that way myself. I thought, you know, this is, you know, really pushing it and is kind of over the top. But after working with him and knowing him over the, this period of time, I really think that I always found him to be very articulate, um, very intelligent, you know, isolated. Yes, he had a a relatively small world that he lived in and that he trusted, but he was a very smart guy. And on that particular front, to me, his focus was on energy. He knew that his performance and, and I mean energy in a, um, uh, in a spiritual sense. Uh, the, this, you know, was, as I was talking about uh, uh, Brace Yourself, is what I realized was it's a spiritual experience for him as well as it is for the audience. You know, his performance, his uh, approach to it, his attitude, when you're actually there on stage doing it, there is a communion that happens with your your audience that is unlike any other kind of experience. And you know, I think it was uh, you know obviously for some performers, it's it's addictive in a way. You don't get that anywhere else. And and I think it it may have been uh, for him in some way that he thrived on it and he gave as good as he got. So the more he gave, the more he got back. And, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, let's not kid ourselves that on at least subconscious level, there's an element of, um, you know, they're worshiping me, you know, uh, who doesn't like that, (laughs) but he, you know, he may have talked about, uh, I'm just trying to see if I remember him saying the word adulation, you know, and that is what a lot of that that is about. So, you know, like he wasn't, you know, we may have talked about the Beatles and about Elvis, you know, Mm -hmm. that um, even on on that it it is what it is. But the the point of, um, uh, you know, with at least my experience with Michael was that those moments are genuine. Mm-hmm. You know, they were not staged. And and that's why he would have cameras that would be shooting away from the stage, that would be shooting the audience through all the performances that, that he was giving. Because that kind of, you know, raw, un- unadulterated responsiveness was, was it, it's real, it's, it's genuine. And, you know, that was, you know, obviously what he, re- he relates to that and yeah. values that. Just before Paul sort of, 
takes over a bit and moves into the dangerous concert section of our discussion. Um, I've always been curious as well about those sections in Brace Yourself where Michael is filmed running with local police outfits from different cities right. that he visited. Did he ever talk to you about why he liked to film that and, and organize that with the different police? You know, he might have talked about that at some point or at, at the very least that it had become a thing for him. I don't, I can't say I remember him talking about, you know, why that was something that, that, uh, that he liked to do or organize, but obviously there's, um, you know, there's a military thing that runs through a lot of mm. his, his imagery. And I don't know. He just loved it. You know, I, I would just be, I just be making something up off, off the cuff. Now. I mean, you know, we can all, you know, probably talk about it in, in, in a similar way. My experience with him was not the why of it, but just that it is something that had been done a number of times. Sure. Mm. Got it. Thank you. All right. Well, well, let's launch into probably one of the big things that you were involved in, which is another iconic thing that in a way the Brace Yourself teaser became a part of. And we're talking about the Dangerous Tour and the right. Dangerous Tour concert film. Uh, essentially, you know, he did use the Brace Yourself as the warm up to get the show going. And that wasn't something that was done that much at the time. Every concert you've seen yeah. by a pop artist in the last 20 years uses that as, as a model now. They all have an opening to their concert with some kind of video thing to get the crowd hyped up and then eventually the entertainer makes their appearance. Right. The Dangerous Tour was, was like one of the first times to do that in a big way, using the Brace Yourself teaser and then having Michael explode out of the stage right. making you know the ultimate concert uh, entrance. Right. So right. what's fascinating about the Dangerous Tour, arguably it's not necessarily the peak of his performance career and the touring elements. A lot of people prefer the earlier tours, the Bad Tour or the, or the, the Triumph Tour or the Victory Tour. Mm -hmm. But essentially the Dangerous Tour is really the only official concert film that was released and broadcast in in a major way like it's the main one that they've officially sanctioned right. so if any new fans go oh is there any michael jackson concerts this is it and it stood the test of time and it's it's incredible mm -hmm. and it's amazing to me that you only had a week and a half or something to edit together this thing that would become the go-to thing for all time but i'm fascinated to dig into this and particularly to learn a little bit about the technical side of the, the formats that you were using, how you edited it in terms of how many cameras they used. I know that his standard concerts, he generally had like four camera operators for the Jumbotron screens. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming they brought in more cameras for the Bucharest taping so that he get more crowd shots and the crane and all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So I'm fascinated to know all about how that came to be and the technical side of what you were working with. And did you have access to all the camera streams or switch it live as you went? And, you know, today we have Avid Multicam and we can do it all digitally. Right. So, yeah, talk us through how that all came to be and what the technical process was and how it all sort of came to be what it was. Um, I have to backtrack a little bit because there's a little unknown uh, story involved here that that I don't know if anybody really knows about or not. And that is how 
a lot of that, including Brace Yourself, almost never came to be. Mm. As I originally told you, the, the original purpose for Brace Yourself was as a lead-in to the black or white video. So once, you know, Michael had approved the music and, and you know, we did it, we did an online and we, do, we did a mix on it where we were, you know, mixing in crowd noises and, and some screams and stuff like that. Um, that was something I remember sitting in a mix with Michael. It was in a, like a, a motion picture theater. And he was literally telling the mixer to turn it up to 11. Um, uh, it, it, was, it was kind of funny because aside from, and you know, with film mixing, um, you know, they, they mix to a standard loudness for a theater. That's, mm. you know, so everything has to fall within that window. And, and I don't think Michael realized that. And I think at some point he was, you know, thinking about having this be theatrically um, released. So anyway, that was funny that, that the mixer had to explain to Michael that they couldn't go any further on making it louder. But um, so here's what happened, though. A week before the uh, black or white premiere, I get a phone call from my contact in uh, Michael's production company who tells me that Mrs. Orff, uh, the composer's widow, who wow. was in charge of his estate, denied use of the music for the video. Wow. And nobody quite, I, I said, what? Nobody had even, you know, considered this. You know, we thought, you know, I, I mean, obviously, Carmina Barana had been used, you know, before I told you about uh, uh, my experience with the uh, David Lynch documentary that it was in, this was completely blindsiding everybody. If it were anybody other than Michael Jackson, that actually would have been the end of the story. That would have never gone one step further, um, and it would have been put on a shelf and put away. Michael, however, loved this so much that uh, well, first of all, let me interrupt here. So it was not part of the uh, black or white video premiere showing. Mm. Uh, they pulled out uh, something that had been maybe done a year or so earlier. Yeah. That was a much more traditional piece uh, that that they wound up plugging in uh, to the black or white premiere when that uh, you know premiered on television. In the meantime, Michael at one point sent. I think three lawyers to Germany to to try to convince um, Mrs. Orff to allow him to use the the music, and there this was there, there are still people in you know either Michael Jackson's office or his lawyer's office that I know and you know that still remember you know like tearing their hair out over this because Michael would not let it go, and. Eventually, they did give him approval and for a very limited window of performance that, that he could use it in. Michael started using it to open the concerts on the Dangerous Tour. And when they got to Germany, they were contacted by Orff's lawyers and said, if you use this music in Germany, you're going to be arrested. <laughs> so now, and again, he sends the lawyers out and eventually it all got smoothed over. But 
this was something that, you know, if any of you have ever dealt with, um, you know, music clearances before, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's in, uh, especially in advertising, uh, you know, it's called demo love, you know, where a mm -hmm. lot of times we'll edit something to a piece of rock music or pop music. And that really makes the visuals come alive. And of course, everybody wants to use that. And it's rarely, rarely the case because the rights are always so expensive and, you know, nobody's got money for that. This, you know, would never have seen the light of day if Michael did not love it as much as he did. And then to eventually get the permission to, you know, I think it's been on like two compilation DVDs that, that were yeah. released. But anyway, so by the time we get to the Dangerous Tour, um, there was even a part of that where it almost didn't happen. So that said, as, as a background, when Michael was prepping for that, I was probably being paid, I want to say almost maybe a couple months before the concert actually happened. And that was for the purpose of, again, collating all this material that he wanted to use in the concert. Um, and, you know, frankly, we, we cheated a lot of stuff. We used things um, that we had used in uh, Brace Yourself from con earlier concerts that he wanted included in the Bucharest concert. And what what the way and that was why it was able to come together. I think it was 10 days between the the shooting of the concert and it then being a premiering on HBO. And yes, I think there were 10 cameras uh, in the actual uh, concert. And I did get what's called the live switch between those, but I also had access to all the uh, the raw footage uh, from from all the ISOs. Yeah, because the live switch was actually broadcast. So I think yes. they actually broadcast it live. Yes. And some of us have seen that version. And it's essentially just uh, the, the live director attempting to keep up with Michael and the show. Yes. And they're often missing things, which is where the editing comes in. You know, like three of the biggest moments in that show, like when he explodes out of the stage, the camera misses it. Right. When he does the moonwalk in Billie Jean, the camera's at the wrong angle. When he does the lean in Smooth Criminal, the camera's not quite in the yeah. right spot. And even the rocket man at the end, you know, didn't quite sort yeah. of tell it. So that's where, you know, having access to all of the, the streams, all the different angles would have been the way to shape it and get it to be the ultimate uber perfect version of the concert that Michael would have wanted. Yes. And that it was with that purpose, you know, going into it, which is why he uh, involved me early on. I was not in Bucharest, um, but I did wind up doing all the work that I did in New York as opposed to L.A. Um, because HBO was in New York and we wound up delivering the uh, the concert tape. I, I want to say 12 hours before it was on the air, <laughs> which is also unheard of, yes. you know, and if it, you know, again, wasn't Michael Jackson, you know, you would have would had have been you know, three, four, five days earlier, or whatever, whatever, yeah. uh, you know, whatever the usual standards are. So I, I went to New York kind of well armed with, with all this uh, material that, that he wanted to include. And then once the show had been taped and, and I got uh, everything, I set up in, in like a little facility in, in New York and had, uh, you know, initially a room uh, that I was working in that had, you know, I don't know, four, I, I could look at uh, 
five or six cameras at a time. I don't think I could actually look at everything at mm. once, but you know, they, they had uh, setups where, you know, like uh, every camera was loaded into its own machine. And then they, they had little black and white monitors, you know, that, yeah. um, uh, that would play those back. And then, you know, I would edit from that into the, uh, you know, the, the program monitor or the, what, what the record yeah. side. And, you know, my methodology with that uh, was always with, with concert footage. I would look at everything against the existing cut. So mm. I started with the, um, you know, with the, the live, the live uh, switch cut and, and played every, and that's, that's the thing. That's why I didn't even um, necessarily take advantage of, of being able to see 10 cameras at once, because to really get into the detail of it, mm. you, you've really got to look at each one individually. Exactly. And so really what I'm doing is I'm looking at each individual camera against what had been cut. And whenever I saw something I liked better, in it would go. Got it. And so obviously it takes time to go go through stuff like that. And very often you don't have the luxury of, of doing, but that's that's how I, you know, that's how I used to approach it. And that's that's how I did this. So what format were you actually doing the edit on? Do you know what it was shot on initially, the concert? I want to say one inch. Yeah. Video. Okay. You know, it certainly wasn't digital at that time, and I don't think they would have done it on two inch. But one one inch was kind of the standard. It definitely wasn't film. We know that, right? And yeah. it, um, I want to say one inch was might have been the standard, and and you know, and it was you know kind of the state of the art at at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then of course I so I you know I don't know if I was actually controlling one inch machines or whether we had dubbed it all down to three quarter inch mm. because it was, it was much, it's so much easier to pop three quarter inch uh, videos into a machine and they load up automatically than threading a, um, even a, a one inch machine and, you know, it's, it's setting it up properly. And there, there's a lot more technical stuff in, involved with that. And, mm. you know, as long as you're making an EDL and, and the time code is tracking, yeah. it's much more efficient to edit off of, uh, you know, three quarter inch video, you know, I could just take mm -hmm. one out and throw one in. And as you get, as you become familiar with the material, you know, you, you know, where, which cameras are, have better coverage and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, um, you know, that's what it was. Eventually along the way, we were starting to realize that to really go through this uh, with a fine tooth comb was going to take longer than the time that we had available. And, and so we we started adding other rooms and we brought in a couple other editors that were working under, you know, my supervision and whether it was adding in other crowd reactions, you know, honestly, at this point, I don't remember if I, I want to say I was focusing on the, you know, performance right. aspects of it. So you didn't split it up and go, you take this song, this song, you just sort Something, of no, built, built layers no. and said, can you add some stuff to the, yeah, got it. No, it, it pretty much all went through my hands. Um, my, my wife remembers a story. They, you know, Michael's people brought my wife out uh, as well because I, you know, was gone for like, I don't know, two weeks or something like that. And, 
And, you know, and they put us up in a nice hotel that I was never at, but that, you know, my <laughs> wife um, got to enjoy. And, yeah. and the facility that we were at, you know, they were entertaining her, um, <laughs> you know, the evenings, you know, going to concerts and theater and Broadway and all that kind of stuff and uh, out to dinner, you know, because... Uh, did, did your wife um, bring you some pillows from the hotel or anything? <laughs> just, you know, just about. Uh, she remembers, you know, one night kind of late. Uh, in the process of of coming to see me after having been out at a you know a dinner or a, a, a theater performance or something like that and walking into the facility and and everything being dark and 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 quiet and as you know she knows her way around at this point you know and as she's walking through um she said at the end of this long hallway you know there's one room that has light on in it you know flickering light coming out and and there are people asleep everywhere you know on couches and, and in other rooms on chairs and and stuff like that and she walks into the uh, you know this last room at the end and there's me um and i'm you know, like, you know, still, you know, going, going through the, the material. Um, I think I was up for like three days straight at, at, at the end. But um, so a couple of things about, about that though, first of all, Michael never showed up okay. uh, during, during the edit. Um, I was talking to him, you know, pretty much every day, but, you know, you know, he, he, you know, talk about a memory of, you know, remembering moments, remembering, you know, mm. specifics from not just that concert, right? You know, the, the details of that. And I'm sure he was, you know, watching the, yeah. the live cut that had been streamed out. But, you know, obviously everything else in, in, in his archive. Yeah. Talk about photographic memory. <laughs> so we were talking every day. But the only representative that was there was this guy, Joe Wilcox, that I right. had, uh, mentioned to you. And I realized eventually that Joe was telling Michael what was going on. You yeah. know? And 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 he trusted me and Michael trusted me. He's Joe saw what I was doing and said to Michael, this is this is what's happening here. And, you know, you should just let him go. Yeah. So that led to one phone conversation where I can honestly say to have heard these words that, you know, nobody ever particularly gets to hear in their career. But Michael said to me, I don't care how much money you spend and don't let anybody else tell you what to do. <laughs> wow. See, that's the thing. See, normally when you do a project like this, there'll be a very specific brief. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Like, I'd be curious to know, like, I'll just give you some examples. A brief for something like this mm -hmm. and as a fan and familiar with this concert, I'd be curious to know if there was ever a brief that had things along the lines of, you know, hype things up with more crowd or make sure you use these particular angles for this dance move or that, or maybe some more controversial things like there's not a lot of close-ups of Michael's face in this concert. Yeah. So I'm like, did they ever say, oh, don't use close-ups? Did they ever, here's another one, did they ever say, you know, he's lip-syncing certain songs, so be conscious of that and try and hide that in the cut? or any of the illusions with the, the, the magic tricks, did they ever sort of give you a brief of things to try, do, or definitely steer away from? Um, uh, commonly known as executive notes. Yeah. Um, no. Okay. Um, this, my, my experience with, with Michael was the stuff we worked on, very personal. He 
on numerous occasions when I was doing other things for him, what he knew that, uh, like his manager, for example, it's really a manager, it was Sandy Gallon initially, and I think somebody else uh, along the way, that they would be calling at some point regarding whatever I, I was working on. And Michael would make a point to tell me not to listen to them. <laughs> and he, he was the only one that had any say about anything. And, you know, he and I would kick something around and, you know, I, uh, you had asked earlier about whether I was uh, at any of his concerts. Yeah. I, I mentioned the Super Bowl performance. Uh, the reason I got there was the way Michael got or agreed to do the Super Bowl performances, they gave him a, a free minute of airtime and to promote the Heal the World Foundation. And that at the time, you know, was, was a, a big thing that, that he was involved in. So he, I got the call to make this uh, 60 second uh, PSA mm. for, uh, for Heal the World. And, uh, you know, I remember one of the things there that eventually we, we you know, went and, and that was something maybe that there was some uh, outside input on, which was to put the phone number up for the entire minute of mm. um because otherwise you know if you see something for even five seconds or ten seconds at the end of a spot nobody's going to remember that but at yeah. the time that was there was the only way to to donate uh or to be involved with an organization like that so anyway and then as a, as a thank you for that uh i got super bowl tickets <laughs> but uh, but other, other than that everything i did with michael you know i had a few contacts in his office uh that would, you know, either facilitate things or that some, I, I mean, a lot of times he just, he called me directly. Um, but when he didn't, I, you know, would get a call from, um, you know, uh, some particular woman in, in his office that I, I don't know, worked for him for, I don't know how, how many years, you know, was there from early on and say, you know, Michael wants to talk to you, you know, when are you, are you available this afternoon or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, or the one time I, I got, uh, you know, invited to go up to the ranch uh, because he had a, a project that he wanted me to work on. And let me tell that story real quickly because it, it applies to what we're talking about here sure. about outside um, outside influence. The only the only time I was up at Neverland was was I got a call one Saturday morning and said Michael wants you to come up. He's got a project he wants you to uh, work on. I said so great. Um, so you know it's like a I don't know two two and a half hour drive from you know where I was living. And um, I get there and aside from telling you about that particular experience, which is a whole other story, what he had me doing was, you know, the uh, short film Ghost that Stan Winston did. Yeah. Of course, we just recorded an episode about it a few weeks ago, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, here's a little here's a little anecdote about that. Michael apparently never really loved the sound work on it, not the music. But the dialogue, the crowd sounds, the ambiences, mm. the um, you know everything else that that went along with that. Yeah, and it was I, I want to say it was in August, and he calls me up there and basically gives me the assignment of redoing the soundtrack for Ghost. Mm. He says it's going to be on VH1. It's going to be a big special for Halloween, and I want to present this with basically a, a reworked, updated, enhanced sound. So I said, great. So I hire 
the people that that do Ridley Scott's movies. Uh, I'd, I'd worked with them before on some things, you know, like a called, company called Sound Deluxe. And we get the, the stems and all the pieces from the original film. You know, I take the dialogue from that, but we replace everything else. And of course, you know, the music masters and the music stays the same. You know, that was all uh, done. But but everything else, um, you know, they recorded new Foley, recorded sound effects. You, know, you basically did it like you would do a movie. Yeah. And then we were mixing it on, on a soundstage at Sony uh, with an Oscar-winning mixer whose name I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember at the moment. Um, but it was, you know, like at least a three-day mix because uh, getting all these elements into play and weaving them in and all that stuff is is um, not an easy process. It's like it's like making a movie. Not enough. Forget how Ghost is. I don't know what forty-five minutes long or something like that. Um, yeah, forty. Yeah, yeah. yeah, roughly. Yeah. So, and I'm talking to Michael along the way. Um, I, I was really hoping he was going to come to the mix because I was really proud of what we had done, and I wanted him to hear it in a in a real theater, uh, you know, and, and so we were all kind of looking forward to that, but um, he, he wound up, you know, for some reason, never being able to make it. So I get home on day two of the mix, and this is now like, I, I want to say a week before Halloween or maybe a little, a little bit longer, and I get a call from the mixer, the lead guy. He says, I just got home. My kids have VH1 on, and they're showing our movie. Wow. And I said, what? So I turn on the TV and sure enough, they're running ghost. What had happened was that Michael never told anybody that we were doing what we were doing and he wanted to surprise them. <laughs> and he didn't realize that they had a tape that they had gotten, I don't know, maybe from even from Michael's office, but they said, we're going to start running this, you know, before Halloween and, and build up surprise and Michael Jackson and all that kind of stuff. And so um, that was actually one big kind of project in a way that, that never saw the light of day because of how Michael communicated with me and maybe sometimes with other people around him. That's a shame because I do notice that myself that a lot of the crowd reactions you can't really hear it's not full enough yeah you know you can't really hear what's going on so that would have been what it needed but <laughs> so that never saw the light of day ever never even no after the I, fact nope mm. Well, there you go, Paul. I mean, it was just a few weeks ago, you and I were talking on another episode about ghosts and how many different versions there are and, and the particular version that you got to see with Michael in the cinema at the, the worldwide premiere. And <laughs> here we go. There's another version that people haven't seen. Before. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually curious. So you're talking about doing a lot of audio work. Did you do the audio work on the Dangerous Tour as well? Or was that another department? No, that was a whole, oh boy, let me see. Um, usually what happens with, with concert stuff is, you know, the, the musician, uh, you know, takes the recorded tapes and, you know, they mix them in a, you know, regular recording studio. And as editors, we're working from, you know, essentially a scratch mix or, or you know, that, that comes off the, um, the board at, yeah. at, at the venue. You know, sometimes this can, you know, and there are always issues where 
Um, maybe sometimes some things are highlighted in the final mix that weren't in, in the original mix. And, you know, um, you know, I've, I've done things where I've cut to particular musicians because I'm, I'm hearing them, you know, mm. doing a fill or something like that. And then in the final mix, that's not there or it got buried. And, and, um, yeah. you know, it, it's, you know, that's, that's when I tear my hair out. But <laughs> um, in, in this one, I think I have to say, I, I don't remember it specifically, but I'm sure that Michael delivered a, like a master audio mix to the f video facility that I was working out of. Right. And that at, at some point um, we replaced the, those tracks. And, and I think by the time, you know, like the last couple of days when, when um, the last of it was coming together, I may well have been editing to, what was actually the the final track mm. you know a lot of times on other projects these these things happen one one after another you know like once the um once the video for a concert is is, is cut then they'll go in and they'll they'll do the final audio mix um and have the picture there yeah. uh, but uh in this case because of you know the amount of time involved and all all that kind of stuff and everything that michael wanted to have done because obviously there was, I, I literally was there the morning that the HBO person came and, <laughs> and picked up the tape out of my hands and, yeah. and took it took it to HBO. So there was nothing else that that happened. But yeah, um, I'm I'm sure we got a master mix at at some point along the way. And one of the reasons I ask is we might get to some talk about the video overdubs in a minute. But there's a famous part at the very opening of the concert when Michael opens the show with the song Jam, mm -hmm. and in the live recording, it's 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 a lip sync performance, but in the final HBO edited broadcast version of the concert that's on all the DVDs, etc., they've famously dubbed in some Michael ad lib vocals on the opening of that song where he's doing his hee hees and owls and trying to make it sound a bit more live just for the opening mm -hmm. before the vocal starts. So do you have any recollection of of that or whose idea that was or whether that just ended up in the mix that you weren't really a part of? I, I don't, but you know, you saying that may, I, which is quite possibly why I blocked it out of my memory, because that's the kind of thing that would drive me crazy. <laughs> you know, as you're saying that I, I, I'm half remembering either, you know, some conversations or reactions around that. And, that winds, winds up something like that winds up being a fait accompli because, you know, it's Michael and that's what he wants and that's what we do. Right. So as much as I don't really recall ever having an argument with him about, you know, it's on some creative level or something like that. We were one of the reasons he kept calling me, I think, and, and um, giving me projects was because he felt that I understood how he wanted to be presented. Mm. That, you know, was the thing going back to uh, Brace Yourself when I was that time I was up there at Neverland for that project be, before we went into his theater and, you know, we watched uh, Ghost and he told me what he was wanting, wanting me to do. I told him I had never been, um, you know, up to Neverland before. And, and so I, I, I said, you know, well, give me a tour. And so we, we got in a little car and, you know, he drove me around and um, awesome. uh, showed me this and that. But he would always mention when, when we were on the phone that Brace Yourself is the, his favorite piece. It's, mm. it's um, the best 
promo the best work that that he and I ever ever did together. And I the stuff that he gave me afterwards, I I know was because of you know I knew how to how to present them, how to put it together. Yeah, it sounds like there was a lot of trust there, and and I mentioned a bit earlier about how you know that maybe there wasn't even the need for a brief to say you know make sure you choose these angles for the dance and the things like that. You seem to intuitively know those examples I gave about, you know, the moonwalk in Billie Jean, et cetera, yeah. where in the live broadcast, the, the vision switcher sort of wasn't quite cutting to the right angles, but clearly yeah. you knew which sort of angles would represent this and what would be the best for right. this part. But the question right. I want to ask you is it's, it's quite commonly known that there were a series of, of video overdubs, as in let's take some better moments from completely different concerts because what's yeah. there in this particular thing maybe wasn't the best representation of that from the tour. Like famous examples are, you know, the girl he brings on stage during um, is it She's Out of My Life. Uh, in the original concert was not necessarily the most uh, excitable. So they've right. found or you've found another girl from a better concert where she went nuts and got dragged off the stage. And there's other moments throughout the concert where, you know, they'll be like, oh, let's, let's add some bits at the end of Man in the Mirror. He's climbing on a scaffolding and, and various things like that that they've taken yeah, from the, other shows. And those were things that were used in Embrace Yourself as well. I, yeah. I remember being a little apprehensive about that. Um, you know, saying that, you know, won't people recognize this, you know, as not, you know, all. But and if I said ever said anything about that, I mean, and it, it would have been along the lines of, you know, well, you know, we we've used this before. Is that OK to use here? And Michael did not care. Right. Um, again, it was about the energy of it, the dynamic yeah. of it. And for Michael, largely, you know, the performance was all crazy all the time and, <laughs> and, you know, so to speak. And, but part of the, the trick of that, you know, or part of what I saw as my walking papers was to weave that in as inconspicuously as possible yeah. Uh, to have the benefit of it without calling attention to it. Exactly. The thing with the girl on stage, honestly, I, I don't remember. And if it was, it was something that would have been decided, you know, relatively early on. And, you know, we just did what, what needed to be done. So anytime that that happened where, because I understand that, like, you know, I've edited things before where you go, we want to make this the best representation, say, sure. of the concert. And unfortunately, on that particular night, that trick or that gag or that move or that thing, the lighting mm. didn't work. So we'll just swap that with another night, which is why normally with a live concert, they would shoot two or three nights and then combine to get the best yeah, performance. Exactly. But I guess my question is any of those times that it was like, let's put this in, was that all coming from Michael? Do you remember saying, oh, I want to put yes. this version in from here? Yes. It was definitely all a Michael sort of. There was never anybody else. Right. You know, we, we were, we were doing his bidding and, and that's where, you know, he was intimately involved. And I can only say to, to my credit that, um, you know, he didn't feel he needed to look over my shoulder because he knew both, you know, what I could do. And, um, you know, obviously in this case, hearing from Joe, who was there all the time, always sitting in on the room, 
I mean, if Joe made a comment, it was something that he had heard from Michael, you know, so he was a, a conduit. I, I think uh, there was, I, I don't even particularly remember, you know, I, I would, I respected Joe's opinion, of course, and um, I'm sure I would ask him uh, about things, you know, but it would be, is this too much? Is this okay? Do you think Michael will like this? Mm. And, you know, more often than not, we were on the same page about that. You know, I, I, you know, when somebody turned me loose, I, I really got into the details of things and, you know, so, and that's what he wanted. It, it, it served, uh, you know, it served his purpose. Did you ever sort of, as you were going through it, I know this is something I would probably do. Did you ever come across any moment where you're like, hmm, I don't think this is working or we have what we need and actually suggest or request that we find something from somewhere else? Or was it only things that Michael said, hey, let's put this in or put this in? I, I think we had so much ancillary material to begin with, uh, to work from. And, you know, I, I actually like little hiccups, you know, thing, that's part of what makes something look like, what, what gives it a, a Organic, of yeah, natural authenticity. I'll tell you guys a, a, a real quick story. Um, I cut kind of a, a very stylized concert piece for Steve Miller uh, once. He did an album called Blues in the 20th Century where he covered a lot of old blues songs. And a director named David Hogan at, at Propaganda did a really beautiful black and white concert. It was like a, a half hour, 40 minute uh, concert film on a soundstage in Los Angeles where they played back rhythm tracks, but recorded live vocals, live guitar solos and harmonica solos. And so I cut this. And then once I was done cutting, then Steve took it in, into the recording studio to do the final tweaking on the mix. Well, when I got the mix back, I was horrified uh, because he made it sound like a record. It all the Steve Miller tricks, the doubling of the vocals, the the every every rough edge was smoothed out. Now I had become friends with an engineer um, uh, who's also a really good producer on his own, named David Cole, who uh, has worked with Steve Miller and Bob Seger for many 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 years. And I had become friends with him. And when I got the final mix and we were laying it into the video, I called him up and I said, I, I, this is, you know, tearing me up because I, I think this it's ruining <laughs> what, what was original and unique about this project, which is, you know, to have it to actually appear live that they're, that they're playing. And his advice to me was write Steve a letter. So I wrote <laughs> Steve Miller a letter and I explained my position and he actually went back and remixed it. Wow. And, 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 and took out some of those things that he was usually doing on his records, but that gave it a little bit of a, um, you know, more of an authentic feel. So anyway, back to Michael, I doubt that, that there was anything that I said, this isn't as good as it could be. I mean, wow. there were 10 cameras running yeah. and, and, you know, the performance is what it is, you know, it's Michael. So I think, you know, I, I doubt that there was something like you had mentioned earlier about maybe where the, the cameras just weren't in the right place at the right time. Um, but there was always something that could be salvaged. And mm. um, if not, we had a backup, you know, maybe from another, you know, uh, pull this moment from such and you know, such a 
uh, a concert and if you know you know try to weave it in you know so that the you know the lighting or the moment whatever looks the same but i don't think that i unless there really would have been a moment where all the cameras and it's not impossible that that might have mm. happened you know where everybody's in for some reason is in the wrong place at the right at the right time uh the wrong place at the wrong time but but not in the sense that I don't think your performance is as yeah. good here as it could be. Um, that was something he would have been on all over uh, much earlier. The thing I would say, like about it, what in a way in, in line with with this kind of thought is what's great about the official edited version of the concert film. When you watch, particularly the opening number, there's an energy and a life and a, and a way you've captured what it's really like to be there and, and the excitement and the energy. When you compare the, the live feed switch, which people have seen, it's on YouTube, that's what I'm talking about. It's an example of like, yeah, they're switching to different cameras, but often they're not in the right place at the same time and it's not quite building the energy. What, what you've been able to achieve is particularly through the use of those crowd shots that you talked about. There's all mm. these extra shots. So when he explodes out of the stage, somebody screams and, right. and all the different things, there's people fainting. And that's really created in the edit and it's such impressive work. I'm mm. just curious uh, if you have any thoughts on creating not necessarily what was truly you know, presented at the time, but mm. giving that pure intention of what it really feels like that the live switch kind of missed or didn't quite capture and it's achieved through your editing. Right. Well, thank you, first of all. Um, and that is what I strive for. You know, obviously watching something on a TV screen is very different than actually being there. And one of the things that I always strived for in, in editing uh, concerts or performance videos was a little bit, as I had mentioned earlier, was giving the audience something that they wouldn't normally see, you know, something that creates an enhanced experience of watching it because you're not actually there. And what can happen is, you know, the, the screen becomes a microcosm. And that's one of the things that I always prided myself on in my editing was I could maybe, let, let's say I would make 10 cuts in something in a, in a couple of seconds of something. But my goal was always to um, guide a viewer um, and, and create a, a visual dynamic. You know, we, we, almost, we, used, uh, we used to call it shiny objects. <laughs> um, it's like waving um, uh, uh, sparkly things in front of a baby that is creating something that you almost don't notice consciously, but, but that gives that video, that moment, a little pizzazz. I can, that, we call that it. That creates, I, yes, exactly, I can. That gives it a dynamic that is, you know, meant to approximate uh, what, you might experience in concert. And that's where all this stuff with, you know, you, you can't do that in a live switch. You know, I think no matter how many cameras you have, but when there's that kind of music that's playing back and forth from an audience to the performer, that's where all this added material, you know, helped to create that energy and, and those dynamics. And thank you for noticing and, and, um, <laughs> Uh, I'm glad it's appreciated, but that's, yes, that's what he hired me for. 
Brilliant. Yeah, deeply appreciated. I mean, that particular concert was the first and one of only two, I think, officially released Michael Jackson concerts that fans can go and buy. Certainly the most widely available because, I mean, it's a standalone DVD that you can buy. But also, um, I think from memory, the first time it was ever released was a DVD disc as a part of the 2004 release, The Ultimate Collection, a Mm. box set. And uh, I remember taking an hour train ride just to pick up that DVD. Uh, And I I feel really um, humbled, I guess. It's sort of come full circle and I get to talk to the guy who edited that. So uh, thank you for all your amazing, brilliant work. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had a trip to Neverland uh, where Michael invited you there and you talked a lot about the the conversation and and why you went there. Um, Do you have any memories about exploring the property with Michael and and just what you thought of the location and the place? Yes. Um, It it was August. So it was, it was hot. And I remember driving up there and there's a couple, there were, there were two guard gates that you go through to get there. And, um, you know, of course, you know, they, my name was, you know, on the list and, you know, they were expecting me. And as I drive up, there's a circular driveway in front of the, the main house. And there, there are old oak trees and it's beautiful California rugged terrain. And, and these oak trees with these huge branches, you know, kind of shading the area. You know, there was, there was a guy like a valet who, you know, told me where to pull up. And I get out of the car and there are three people standing on, on the um, uh, the walkway to the house, and this was, you know, the thing that they did all the time, you know, like a, uh, in kind of a maid and butler outfit, and and they all in unison go, "Welcome to Neverland." So I go in, and they uh, guide me into a into a room um, to wait for Michael, and he, um, it was, you know, this is two thousand four. I I, I want to say I I took a camera along, but you know, I was always very low key with, um, I never asked Michael for anything. Um, I, I, I got some autographed pictures for some relatives, but you know, like I never asked for anything like for myself. I I just thought that wasn't cool to do. And, you know, that wasn't the nature of, of, of our relationship. So, but anyway, there was this room It had a lot of awards in it, a lot of the thing, you know, um, um, beautiful things that he had collected, uh, you know, over the years and stuff like that. So that's where I was waiting. And it, and it was about 15 or 20 minutes and, you know, and he comes in and he's you know, wearing jeans and t-shirt and, you know, fedora, you know, at that point, you know, we give each other a hug and he says, well, you know, um, you know, I, we're going to go to the movie theater and, uh, you know, so I want to show you something. And that's when I said, you know, well, I've never been up here before. You know, would you show me around? So he said, okay. So as we're walking to to get out to where the, the car is that he was going to uh, drive me to the theater. And, um, you know, we passed like through one room and, and, you know, obviously a lot of stuff that's almost like it's like a museum or something like that. But what I remember was this, this huge white grand piano that, that had all the family pictures on it. And, you know, and he, 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 <laughs> we're standing there, you know, looking and he's just, you know, kind of describing, you know, the stuff. And he points to that famous picture of, of him as a, as a kid in the Jackson five, you know, where he's smiling and, you know, looking all angelic. He's, you know, he said, man, this is me as a little kid. 
Um, you know, and he had pictures of Paris and Prince uh, up on the wall. I, I forget how, how old they might have been at the time. But, um, you know, he was just kind of taking me through his house. And then we went out and he had this little electric vehicle that they still make. And I, for the life of me, can't remember but it, it's literally like a two-seater um, mm, and golf cart. Almost, yes. But it, it was it's actually a car. I mean, I actually knew somebody that had one once and I see him occasionally on the street and I go, that's what Michael Jackson drove me around Neverland in. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he, he, he said he had gotten one of these, these uh, little cars. Uh, so we took like a circuitous route, uh, you know, to the um, the movie theater, and along the way, he's he's telling me how he's you know driving around, uh, you know, like what what he you know normally does. And he said the other day he drove uh, up in up into the hills a little bit, and he actually got stuck, and they had to call a tow truck to, to tow him out of there. And, <laughs> you know, it was all kind of pretty easy, easy going, and you know, he drove me through the zoo, but none of the animals were out. They were they were all in, but you know, he said you know this is where all the animals are, and uh, you know, and then there's another building that has a recording studio, and you know, of course, a pool, and then you know, eventually, I, you know, we drove by, you know, the front, you know, with the, the thing that looks like Disneyland, and and then eventually we got to the movie theater, and and um, the movie theater, you know, was I don't know how many, you know, maybe could have sat 30, 40 people, something like that. You know, it was like a little screening room. The only other guy there was was his projectionist, you know, who'd been with him for forever. You know, so then we, we sat down and he, you know, he talked about it. He said, you know, I want you, this is the movie Ghost that Stan Winston did. And, you know, let, I want you to watch this. So, so we watch it. And then, so after it's over, then, you know, he's, he's talking about what he wants me to do. And I'm sort of starting to get the picture of, you know, this is a remix I, I get it, you know, what, what, he, what he's looking for. So I asked him, I said, can we watch this again? You know, you know, talk me through it, you know, point, point things out, you know, that you, you know, particularly don't like. And, um, and, you know, do you have a, do you have a, you know, like a pad of paper that, you know, that I can take some notes on? So I look around, there's, there's no, there's no paper, there's no pads. So Michael gets up and starts running around you know, looking in drawers and, and, you know, finding a TV tray and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm going, you know, Mike, you, know, you don't have to do, I can go, I can go look for something. So no, 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 no. So he brings me a TV tray and a legal pad and a pen and, and, you know, and then we, you know, then we continue, but, you know, which was kind of sweet and it, it sort of heart back to that first experience at his manager's house of trying to figure out how to get sound out of a cassette tape in, in his manager's <laughs> house and us like pushing buttons and running back. There's kind of a playfulness, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a childish playfulness that that I definitely uh, connected with, with him on. Now, now we've got to explore this more because you, whether you know this or not, what you're actually talking about right now is some things that are really unknown in the community in terms of no, like I had never known that Michael was working on ghosts right. seven or eight years after it came out. What yeah. we thought the final version as a fan community, we thought, we thought the final version, the sanctioned version yeah. was the 97 version. Yeah. So you're telling us that in 2004, you were working with Michael on a potentially final sanctioned version of ghosts that you ended up, Yes. You know, yes. doing. When you were with him in that initial meeting in his Neverland theater, was he talking to you 
specifically about the audio or was he talking about a different cut of the film as well? No, no. He was, the the cut uh, is what it is. I mean, that was right. uh, um, set in stone. But what he was, you know, specifically talking about was um, was the audio and all those, everything aside from the music numbers. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think we may have actually enhanced some of the, you know, like, again, with, you know, crowd sounds or what, what um, you know, whatever the hell the scene needed at the time, you know, so that it actually feels like a movie, you know, that's not, you know, just all of a sudden there's a music video and then we're back to, you know, dialogue and, and, and um, uh, sound, but, you know, just to weave it all together and, and do it on a higher level uh, than, than what was originally created. And what year was that, that that was happening? 2004. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So five years later, Michael tragically passes away. And one thing we learn around the time that he passes away was that his late 80s manager, Frank DeLeo, mm -hmm. had been brought back onto the scene. Mm -hmm. And Frank at that time was actually talking about Michael wanting to do a Halloween special that included ghosts. And mm -hmm. I think there might have been some statues and different things that were made for it, but it never, never actually came to fruition. Mm -hmm. So what I'm curious about is in that Neverland visit or even beyond that into the late 2000s, did you ever have conversations with Michael about what ghosts could end up being used for? No. What I was working on, you know, came to its unfortunate end. I, honestly, I don't even know if we finished the mix. Uh, like we were, like I said, we were in the middle of it in, in at Sony with, with an Oscar-winning uh, sound mixer and we might have been close enough that it could have gotten laid off, but we were like, you know, laid off to tape, uh, in other words. But that whole thing came to a crashing stop as as yeah. soon as, you know, the, the surprise of it was no longer relevant. And, you know, Michael's other people <laughs> realized that I'd been, I'd been spending a good amount of money on his behalf on something they knew nothing about. I find it interesting too, though, that, that it did come to a halt because the thing is that it had already been released. So the surprise mm -hmm. wouldn't have been broken by it being shown on VH1 or whatever you said before, because it had already been released as a laser disc and a VHS in yes, a box right, set in 97. Right. So, are you able to explain again, like why, why was the wind taken out of the sails? What Michael described and, uh, was that he, 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 you know, his attention to detail and, you know, maybe to the, um, uh, detriment of realizing that there are other things going on in the world besides, uh, you know, Michael Jackson things, you know, he said, I wanted to present a surprise you know, to the world. Right. Here's Ghost with a brand new soundtrack or, you know, or enhanced soundtrack. You know, it was something how, you know, he always, uh, I think, would would try to enhance something or create something new. You know, he didn't just want to put the same old thing out all, all the time. And this was something that apparently had always been um, a little bit of a sore spot for him or something he wasn't uh, quite satisfied with. So he wanted to, you know, like George Lucas, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, he wanted to have it the way he wanted it and was, was actually happy with and proud of. And, 
And, you know, that was going to be the particular vehicle for putting it out in the world, which was this VH1 um, Halloween presentation. Right. And I suspect that moving forward into those late 2000s years, he still hadn't put that to bed. I think um, mm. from comments from different people that were working with him in the This Is It era, you know, that was still something he wanted to complete mm. and um, address as well. Now, looking back in these two distinct eras, so you were working with him in the very early 90s on Brace Yourself, on editing the HBO special. You were then meeting him again in 2004 at Neverland. And what's interesting about those two distinct time periods is those years, 92 and 2004, both preceded two sets of very unfortunate and controversial allegations, I guess. Mm -hmm. And this is a bit of a, a sensitive topic, but, mm -hmm. you know, surely, especially in the early 90s when you were working closely with Michael on some of this material that would become very public, um, like the, the HBO concert, surely it must have been a massive shock to you having worked with him in 92 and then just really less than a year later hearing that he was accused of you know, child molestation. So what went through your head when you found out about those allegations? You know, to some extent, you, you go through, what is it, the seven, five or seven stages of grief. You know, I've been around long enough to take everything with a grain of salt. And what I've said to people in the past that ask about that is, my experience is that there is nothing that indicates or hints at that kind of behavior or uh, incidents. You know, people have complicated lives and there's obviously a lot of things that people do, all of us, you know, do that maybe even the people closest to us aren't fully aware of. You know, it's kind of the nature of life. Uh, this is obviously, you know, something very serious, very abhorrent. And, you know, given Michael's attention and awareness of children and childhood, you know, he even he said to me at some point, this might have been in, in 2004, uh, that why he was doing something was because he, he never had a childhood, you know, and why this was so important to him. Oh, it might it might have been, I think, as we were walking through Neverland and there was a room where he had some some really big, uh, I, they, I think they were Lego houses, but I mean, really sophisticated, big, sophisticated stuff. And and there's a, a lot of, you know, the whole Disneyland thing at Neverland. So, you know, and he said to me, you know, this is, I, I, I do this because because I never had a childhood and he wants other children not to lose that, you know, not to lose their own childhoods. I, I know a lot about psychology and I know um, uh, my wife comes from a rough home environment and is very sensitive and aware of those dynamics. And I'll tell you that, you know, she talked to Michael on the phone often, you know, because he was calling the house, but um, I took her to meet him once. Uh, and it was actually during uh, when when Fincher was shooting his video. I was doing something else for Michael at the time. And I'd asked him, I said, you know, my wife, you've talked to my wife. She's never met you. Would you mind if I brought her by to say hi? He said, no, of course not. 
so we were there on the set and he was in a, you know, he had a trailer and, and, uh, you know, we, we got in, there were a few other people ahead of us that had something to run by him. Um, but then, you know, he came up, said, hi, I introduced her, said, hi, shook his hand. She's said she never picked up the, the slightest vibe that he might have that kind of stuff brewing underneath. Um, she saw the childlike, she even may have said the lost child in his eyes, you know, seeing him uh, out of context, so to speak, but she never picked up anything from him. And she's very energetically conscious, aware and sensitive that would indicate that. And that is my position on that. And I believe that. And I can say out of my own experience that I never saw anything that would make me think otherwise. That's beautifully said. And that's what we hear from like time to time when we talk to all of the different collaborators that worked with Michael. Something that really warms my heart is the fact that you were physically there for him um, really during his darkest hour. We, we've also spoken to people that worked at Neverland, um, some of his close staff that have talked to us about how you know, we, you wouldn't believe how quiet his world became in sort of 2003, mm. four, five, when he, you know, those allegations broke out. A lot of his, you know, quote unquote friends or celebrity friends kind of just ghosted him and distanced themselves from him. But to hear that you were there physically with him and for him during his darkest hour and he was able to walk through Neverland with you and talk to you about his relationship with children. I find that to be really, um, really heartwarming. So thank you for sharing that story with us, Bob. I'll tell you one uh, last thing. Um, you, you know, my history with Michael is, is you know, there were like every couple of years uh, was something that would come up and, you know, that, that he wanted to use me for. Um, you know, there were other uh, number of like little promos and, and, and montages uh, along the way, uh, you know, when he would get an award and you know, they would have a little something or other. The last time I actually, I didn't speak to him, but I came up in conversation. Um, the year that he passed in January of that year, I was in New York working on a TV commercial. And I get a call from a woman who is working for AEG, I think was the concert promoter that was yeah. uh, setting up the, the concerts, right? And um, she said, you know, you don't know me, but I, but I tracked you down. We're, we're starting to make TV commercials and promos and trailers for Michael's concert series, you know, in, in London. And he's not been happy with them. And when, you know, when we asked him for feedback, the only thing he said to me was find Bob Jenkins. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> So I love that she called and then she sent me the, you know, what they had been doing. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, and cause this ties in with the rest of our conversation was what I told her, you know, they were, they were fine. They were fine promos, but they were all focused on Michael. And so I told her the story about brace yourself and what I had, the conclusion I had come to about Michael in relationship to his audience mm. and what that meant to him and how it was important for the dynamic between the two of them to be 
seen and, and respected. And so my advice to her was to go to dig into those moments, you know, uh, including Brace Herself and, and the concert and to include those in these. And she did. And, and I think it was, it might've been after Michael passed at that point, we, uh, this woman and I got together, we, we, we said, you know, I think we need to have a drink together. And she told me that he did like them and he did approve them after that. But that was the thing that made the difference. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, this, this whole, this is it era, you know, unfortunately ended in such tragedy after you finished working on that promo for the concerts or, or should i say during that time was there much interaction with michael in the same way that there was during the brace yourself editing or was this more of a thing that was handed over to you did you ever get feedback from michael on it on on what I, I'm, I'm sorry sorry maybe my understanding is is incorrect but you worked on a promo ad for this is it right no, 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 no. I never did. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought you actually ended up working on it. No, the pro the production company, um, the, the concert promoter had, had people doing these, right? right. And, but he wasn't happy. They sent them to me. And I, I just, I just told him what I thought Michael would want. And right. why. I see. And so then they went off and, and took my advice and, you know, apparently to good effect, but I actually never did that myself. Right. I so, sorry. I thought eventually you circled back and actually did that. No. And you know, that kind of makes sense now because when I watched the, this is it promo, like I watched it last night, the video that was actually shown right before Michael got on stage to do the press conference, it right. actually kind of feels like brace yourself. Like there's a orchestral mm. score with a um, choir and then there's lots of quick cuts to different highlights of his career. Yeah. It, it's sort of, you can tell that the inspiration or the advice you gave them obviously was there because what ended up right. being shown before the press conference was kind of similar. And, you know, I'll tell you that um, after he passed his office uh, invited me to the, the memorial uh, celebration at the Staples Center in, in L.A. and um, uh, gave me some tickets for that. And as I was talking to the woman who is my main contact at uh, MJJ, she said the first thing out of his archive that Michael pulled to be included in those concerts was Brace Yourself. Mm. Mm. Wow, I just got goosebumps. Like I said, that, it, that was really, it set the tone. It was the template for everything that came after. And it was just, it's a, I'm just amazed at how even the choice of the music, the Carmina Burana was just something that you came up with. And then all of your input should never be underestimated or undervalued because not only did you create something that was so incredible, but it continued right through to his career, right to the very end as the the tent pole of this is what we're aiming for. And it seems like everything was based on that in some way. We've got to do something like that or try and better that. That's like the golden sort of. <laughs> the gold standard. Exactly. <laughs> it really became that. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I would tell you straight out, I think it's the best thing I've ever edited. Wow. You know, it almost did not come to pass, you know, that, Unlike the uh, ghost uh, remix, when Mrs. Mrs. Orff says <laughs> no to Michael Jackson, um, you know, like I said, if it would have been anybody else, that, that would have been the end of it. But his, you know, he he loved it so much that, um, you know, it spoke to him, and it spoke to how he saw himself and 
wanted to be presented. I, I've showed that to a lot of people that uh, friends of mine that, that have said, you know, I'm not I'm not really a Michael Jackson fan. But after seeing that, I want to go back and, you know, check him out again. So around this time, I mean, you know, right up to the very end, I mean, do you like did you do you remember the last time you even spoke to Michael and, and eventually like how you heard about his passing? Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that visit in 2004 was the last time I actually talked to him mm. as well. I was, I, I remember distinctly where I was when I, I was, I, I had had an appointment or something in Beverly Hills and I was driving home and I was at a stoplight when I, when I heard the news, you know, it was like one of those surreal moments, you know, like, um, you know, the Kennedy assassination or John Lennon being killed, um, that just seemed so out of the blue, you know, that, that it was unbelievable. And, and I was on my way home. And of course, when I got home and seeing my wife and, you know, we think we both were in tears, you know, because he, you know, he had been, uh, you know, a part of our history or our history together. And we have obviously lots of stories to tell from that, that are, you know, I, I mean, you know, there's, there's some other stuff that I could tell you on another time that are, were a little bit more personal stories that were speak to me about what kind of a person he really was. A question that we ask every special guest that we ever have on the MJ cast that that's known or worked with Michael and I want to ask you the same question is, how do you think Michael Jackson should be remembered? Um, do you know what? Um, I think the final words of, um, I believe, at least in the movie, the, the final words in the book, The World According to Garp, mm-hmm. as he's on his deathbed, he says, remember everything. And that's what I would say about remembering Michael, you know, all the, the good and the bad and the little and the big creates the, the full picture of who someone is in with somebody like him, you know, his, his genius is, you know, obviously very well documented. And I think as time goes on and maybe as some of these behind the scenes stories come out, you you realize just how involved and how intimately he knew all the details of, of everything that he was doing. It was such a, such a unique life, you know, from, and from childhood on, but all this other stuff is unfortunately a part of that story as well. I remember reading the book, uh, Michael and the madness, I think was, was magic and the madness. Yeah. That, that writer's, conclusion that the plastic surgery stuff may have been an attempt to not wind up looking like his father. You know, that's some really profound, basic, human, fundamental stuff that affects, you know, that we all have maybe versions in our own lives of of what shapes us into the, the people that we become. And so I think it all becomes a part of the big story. First and foremost, he's a musician and a performer and a brilliant, unique one at at that. But my experience with him was as a human being and, you know, and I liked him and I appreciated him. And, you know, I think we did some good work together. Amazing. 
So Bob, the, the, the contribution that you've made to Michael's legacy is, is significant and long lasting and classic. And th- some of those pieces of work are the go-to pieces that fans will continue to enjoy and new fans discovering Michael's legacy for many years to come. And they're all a part of a lot of the officially released um, issues and DVDs and various things that are out there. And hopefully that they will continue to be a part of that and possibly even restored into, you know, higher quality in the future and, and preserved because I, I do 100%, you know, feel what you're saying that Michael thought this was one of the best things he'd ever done to represent what he did, his art, and also one of the things that you're most proud of as well. So congratulations and, and you know, well done for just, you know, having that as part of Michael's legacy and being able to achieve such great work in your career. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely been a high point. So I guess we, uh, we might wrap things up by um, asking what's, what's next for you? I mean, you've had a long and, and illustrious career and you're still oh boy. winding things down <laughs> and hopefully enjoying the fruits of life and not staying up for three nights in a row trying to meet crazy <laughs> deadlines. What's next for you? And- hey, sometimes, sometimes that can be fun. Absolutely. You know, um, uh, just a, a, a very quick side story. My wife has a special needs brother who lives with us. He's cognitively impaired, um, but he's he's like a big kid and and he, he loves movies and, and music and, and all that kind of stuff. But he's, you know, he's 65, but he's like an eight year old. And so I just made a little Halloween. Halloween is his favorite uh, holiday of the year. Awesome. And so he and I just went out and made a little a little horror movie. Where my wife had found one of these um, like mechanical zombie hands at a, at a drugstore <laughs> and bought it for him. And and we started riffing on it and said, you know, we should make a make a movie for Raymond is his name and where he's where the hand is chasing him around the forest. And, and so, <laughs> you know, we did that. And with you know, technology the way it is now. And I, I shot it on my iPhone in 4K and edited it on my laptop. And, nice. um, you know, it's it's amazing what you can do now. Uh, you know, I in some ways, I unfortunately can't quite afford to retire. And so I'm, you know, I, I worked on a movie last year. I've, I've been doing little documentaries here and there. I'd actually le- love to get into some concert work again. And I'm on, yeah. one of the, the, you know, regrets that I've had is that I didn't pursue more of that at the time because I've, I've always liked having kind of a broad range of projects to work on. Mm. But there is something about concerts and music and picture that is really close to my heart. So I'm, I'm looking for opportunities. Great. See, I feel like what would be great, though, is and one of the criticisms of the, the Michael Jackson estate is kind of how much they don't necessarily contact back to the original creators of things and collaborators with Michael to, you know, bring their visions into the current technological reality. But Mm -hmm. how awesome would it be if we could get like Bucharest again, but a newly remastered and edited version that you've overseen, like, or even brace yourself, you know, recreated now, but using rescans of the original footage and oh man there's there's so much stuff the the michael jackson estate could still do if they could just reach out to you again and make that happen well you know it's funny that you mentioned that because i had actually just recently had exactly that thought 
because I was uh, talking to some people. My, my wife had put uh, Brace Herself up on her Facebook page um, and just got lots of positive responses. And it made me realize that just even for my own kind of bookending maybe of my career, that exactly that kind of thing that you're describing might be something not just good for me, but, you know, good for Michael. Mm. And and so um, I, I still have a, a, a contact there, and, and I've actually been um, l- looking at what fans have done, uh, like with AI, for example, and, you know, to, to kind of be educated on, on what the current state of both fandom and what the estate has released is, and maybe be able to pitch them on an idea that we can put those things together on for exactly that kind of, uh, let's say, update. So... I'm all for it. Fingers crossed. Amazing. Well, we, <laughs> we here at the MJ cast, man, we're behind it. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. All right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for joining us here on the MJ cast. I know that you have been chatting with my co-host um, Elise for, you know, a little while now about making this happen. And we just feel so really honored that you've been able to share your story with both Paul and I and our audience about, getting to know Michael, working with Michael, building a friendship with him. What a special thing that we've been able to capture. So thank you for giving us so much of your time today. You're, you're very welcome, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Um, you know, you guys, what you do sounds really great. My wife, Laura, was the one that uh, got the connection to Elise through, I think, another woman, the, the one that worked at Neverland for um, a while. Um, I think she was at the guard yep, gate. Yeah, probably, I, I think. If I re- yes, yes, yes. I think that yep. was the name she mentioned. So um, my thanks to Laura, my wife, also for uh, helping to make this happen. And it's really been a pleasure. Wonderful. Now, uh, all of our listeners, um, I'm sure they're going to have questions above and beyond what we have asked. Is there a specific place online that you are, or you, maybe your website or social media that Michael Jackson fans can use to, to reach out to you? Um, I would suggest my website. Uh, I, I do have, uh, you know, contact in, info there, at least for starters. I mean, I, you know, I have, I have no idea um, what kind of a response, you know, we might get. And if it, if it, um, if it gets either out of hand or, or we need to expand on that. I mean, I, I am on Facebook uh, under Bob Jenkins and my website is bobjenkins.com. Um, I talk a little bit about, you know, my relationship with Michael in my bio. And of course, Brace Yourself is up there. Um, so I would say let's let's start there and, and see where it goes. That's wonderful. And of course, listeners know where to find us as well. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon as the MJ cast. Uh, we'd love it if you could subscribe to us as a podcast. Of course, you know, we are on YouTube as well, but uh, we're best heard as a podcast. So we're on Apple podcasts, we're on Spotify. Uh, we'd also love it if people could reach out to us through email and give us feedback on the episode or the season and how it's gone so far. We're at the MJ cast at 
icloud.com. Our website is theamjcast.com. There's a couple of cool things on there as well people can go to if they would like. We've got a link on there to our shop, theamjcast.com slash shop, where you can buy merchandise like, you know, T-shirts and things like that to celebrate Michael Jackson and the MJ cast all at the same time. Uh, and we would love it if you could check out our website. Uh, we will be back shortly, um, I, I believe, in, in a couple of weeks or even less with our Christmas special for this season to wrap up the ninth season of the MJ cast just before we move into our 10th season. Oh, my goodness. Can't even believe it. But thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to listen to this amazing story with Bob Jenkins and also uh, with Paul Black, both professional film editors from other sides of the world. It's been really special being, being able to hear both of those guys geek out. All things Michael, all things film. So thank you so much for, for tuning in, everybody. Have a great fortnight ahead and keep Michaeling. So I have one other little story to add to uh, my time working on the Bucharest concert that I think uh, would be of interest and is uh, much more on a, on a personal note. While I was preparing for the concert, uh, I think I had mentioned that uh, Michael had been calling me uh, weeks or even a, a month beforehand because there were things out of his library he wanted me to pull together to have available to potentially use in the concert. So he was calling me on a regular basis. And the way that worked was that a lot of times he would call like at seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, what he was doing was, uh, my, my understanding was that he often drove around LA and I, I think he had like a 57 Chevy or some sort of classic car like that. And he would drive around town before uh, the traffic really started because it's the only time that he could really be out in public spaces without getting mobbed or recognized. So a lot of times our phone would ring at seven o'clock in the morning and, and the phone was over on my wife's side of the bed. So she would answer. And um, I think I had mentioned that Michael always called me Jenkins. He would call me Bob, call me Jenkins. So <laughs> she would pick up the phone, say hello. And, and he, he would say, is Jenkins there? Um, and of course, she recognized his voice. So, you know, she would just either hand the phone to me or, or, you know, tell me it's Michael. And um, I would go into my office that was right next to our bedroom and pick up the phone. And then we, we would have our conversation. So, um, after this had been going on for a while, my, my wife, Laura, is no shrinking violet. And um, uh, one time I had gone into the uh, office to talk to him. 
uh, and uh, or as I was going in, uh, she had put the phone on hold. And um, as I'm leaving the bedroom, she says, tell him it wouldn't kill him to say hello to me one day. It, you know, he's been calling often enough and, and he, I'm sure he recognizes my voice. So, you know, I, I kind of laughed and I said, oh, OK. So I um, went in the office. We had our conversation. And um, before we we hung up, I said, hey, Michael, you know, my wife wouldn't mind if you said hello to her if uh, one morning you're calling early in the morning and, you know, if, if you said hello to her before you asked for me. And he said, oh, 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 OK, fine. Oh, sure. So we hung up. Two minutes later, the phone rings again and I picked it up. It's him. And he goes, um, can I talk to your wife? I said, oh, sure. So I put the phone on hold. I yell out. I said, said hey, honey, uh, Michael's on the phone for you. And of course, at this point, she's thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, <laughs> what's, what's he going to say? And um, so she picks up the phone and he talked to her for 10 or 15 minutes apologizing and explaining. And he said, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't want to come across as, as rude, but um, I have so many things on my mind and things I'm thinking about that I'm really just focusing on what I'm thinking about in the moment. And I, I, I'm not really paying attention always to who, who I'm talking to. So I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I don't mean to be rude. And you know, please forgive me. And he was, he was really sweet. And he really, you know, took the time to, to explain that. So that, that was that. Now, fast forward to, you know, I, I had talked about my editing on, on the concert film and uh, how, how uh, long and intense a period it was, and then delivering it to HBO, you know, just like 12 hours before it was on the air. And um, after the concert aired, I thought I would hear from Michael in some form or other, you know, because I really was curious if, you know, if you liked the way it turned out and all that. And I didn't hear anything. So after about a week, I called his office and, and I said, you know, I'm a little concerned. I, I want to be sure he liked it. He was happy with the work that I did. And um, I hadn't heard anything from him. And um, my contact at his office said, oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry. Believe me, if Michael doesn't like something, you're going to hear about it right away. <laughs> but if he's happy with something, he's moving on to the next thing. And, you know, and he doesn't it, think about it at all anymore. You know, he's just moving on. I said, oh, oh, good. OK, um, you know, glad to hear that. Okay, so a few more days go by and I get a call from his office and they said, um, you know, we're just wondering if you're going to be home this afternoon. Uh, Michael wants to send a gift. I said, wow. Oh, sure. Cool. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we were we were home that day in the afternoon and, you know, the doorbell rings and we open the door and there's a delivery guy standing there with probably the biggest gift basket we've ever seen in our lives, um, you know, from some Beverly Hills boutique with champagne and, and perfumes and, 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 and flowers and, you know, treats and, you know, just one of these kind of classic 
shrink wrap gift baskets. You know, he's holding you with, with two arms. And so he said, wow, thank you. So, so we take it from him and we bring it inside and put it on the table. And, you know, there's a card on it. And so we pick up the card and it's for my wife, it's for Laura. Wow. And we open up the envelope and the card says, thank you for your patience and understanding. Love, Michael. Oh, wow. So after all that time, you know, he had obviously remembered that earlier conversation and, you know, sent us that, uh, sent it to her as a thank you. And we really felt that, you know, it was an indicator of what kind of a thoughtful, considerate person he really was. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. It just goes to show how, you know, yeah, sensitive Michael was. That's, a, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Um, yes, and, and re- remembering and all that. He, he did send me something uh, a few days later. Uh, some I, I don't remember exactly what. It was like a, a, a Sony, uh, it might have been like a player recorder uh, type thing. It was sort of a, a technical gift. But this, you know, to think of her first and to put it together in that way and, and to remember that was something that always touched us and stayed with us. Do you guys still have that in your house, that that note? You know, somewhere. I'm sure we do. I, I think it's in a file with, um, you know, memorabilia that that, uh, that could be in, in storage at the moment. But, of course, I think we've got it stashed away somewhere. Beautiful. There we go, Bob. That's that's perfect. I think it's a it, it, it's a good touch, and you know, it's the kind of thing you don't necessarily hear. It, it's not something I trot out all the time when when talking about Michael. Um, yeah. But you know, I think given the the nature of the podcast that you do, and you and your audience would appreciate that. So. Thank you. Yeah. It's those, that's what I like to really capture is when we're talking to people who collaborated with Michael, it's those sort of little side stories that people have about him and his personality and, and things he used to do. You learn the most interesting things. Like I've spoken to people that have said that he used to drive around in a pickup truck sometimes by himself without anybody else. And he was apparently a terrible driver. (laughs) (laughs) When, when, uh, um, I I think I may have included that in the, yeah. when, when we were telling the story about being up at the, at, at Neverland, um, that he had told me he, you know, this little electric car that he had, um, yeah. you know, that he used to drive around that, that he had gotten stuck in a, in a ditch the day before and they had to call a tow truck to pull him out. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's funny how, how those, um, how those things are. One, one other little story I had once was, and and this was maybe after this was before being up at Neverland and maybe in the earlier years of, of knowing him and, you know, working maybe on some sort of uh, montage for, for, you know, him accepting an award or something like that. And, you know, they were going to play a little kind of greatest hits thing and I was putting it together and and I again went to a recording studio that he was working in to show him what I was doing, and it happened to be, 
the day that uh, Rick James got arrested for, I think he was accused of holding like a couple girls hostage or something like that. And, and he had gotten arrested. And when I went to the recording studio, the, uh, the TV was on and the news was on. And there was, you know, there were a handful of us and, and Michael standing around watching it. And, and a- after the, the story aired, I made some crack about, Rick, I, you know, I don't, you know, some kind of smart ass comment, you know, and everybody laughed and Michael looked at me and he goes, Oh, Jenkins has a sense of humor. And, <laughs> and I, I, I sort of thought that was funny because I said, you know, I, 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 I mean, I didn't say this, but I thought, well, you know, we've known each other for a while. And I, I, I think you would, uh, you know, realize that, you know, maybe at least that was a smart Alec, but, you know, maybe a lot of times those things don't come through because you're, you're, when you're when you're working, you're focused and talking about what you're what you're dealing with, and you know making kind of side comments isn't necessarily a part of that. So um, you know you don't you don't realize until something like that comes up. I love that story. That's just that's brilliant. Thank you so much for that little <laughs> so, bonus. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, listen, Jamie. Thank you. Um, I, I really in, enjoyed my time with you. Thank you. You know, I hope uh, maybe in some way our paths cross in the future. Sounds great to me. Thank you so much, Jenkins. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now you just have to work on your your uh, the tone a little bit, raise, raise it up a little bit, and your yeah. Michael impression. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Take care. Merry have Christmas a good day. and have a great holidays. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye.